Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, it's the second Sunday of the month, which means it's time for Nutrition Insights with Peter Rogers, MD. And today he is going to be discussing autoimmune disease. Please welcome Dr. Rogers to the show. It's so nice to see you again. Hi. Hey, you look a little bit different, younger. Something's different about you. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, what happened was, you know, I used to have a beard, then I had a goatee and, you know, where some of this came from too, my wife got a little heavier cause she hasn't gone to low fat vegan. She was making smoothies. She's been doing that for a couple of years now. And I said to her, you know, you really ought to just go low fat vegan. That'll, that'll turn it around. You don't even need these smoothies and the smoothies are really loud. I like to leave the room cause it's so loud. It hurts my ears. And she's a little annoyed with me. She looked over and she goes, well, I would rather be fat than be ugly. I go, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, when I married you, you were a hunk, but now you're bald and your goatee, it's disgusting. I said, oh, really? So I shaved off the goatee. So then I had the mustache and I kept getting teased about the mustache. Not that it was a big deal. I, I, I leave the goatee and the mustache because it's kind of a pain to shave. And so then I shaved the mustache. So just, you know, kind of fun going along with it. And of course, what happens, I go, well, you look younger, but now you look kind of feminine. And I'm like, you know what? No matter what a guy does, he's always going to get teased. So fine. I, th I think I think it looks great. And you really do look a lot younger. I was like, whoa, so something's different. Well, thanks for explaining. You, you know, that's really interesting. Um, is, is your wife vegan, but not low fat vegan? Oh, no, no, no. She's she, see a lot of people. I've been amazed how many people it is. I, they they all have this major psychological struggle. And there's almost like an identity struggle. It's it's, it's kind of strange how big it is, you know, I think partly because I was so afraid when I was fat, oh my gosh, I'm going to become a diabetic and I'll be impotent. I'll have heart disease, all this stuff um, versus most people, they're not that afraid of disease and they don't like the idea that there's like ethnic foods they eat on the holidays and stuff. And they also, so that's kind of how that all stays in that st status quo, steady state situation. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Thanks for sticking to your guns. So you know, doing the diet, even if it's not, even if it's uncomfortable for those around you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I know I'm right. And they gradually know I'm right too. The years go by and they see I'm more energetic and fit and thin than, than their friends or friends, parents and stuff. It's obvious, you know, but it is what it is. So I, um, I know I'm right. I continue with what I do, but I, yeah, I wish I was more able to persuade more people. Yeah. It's hard. Is, is what about in the hospital you work at? I'm uh, coworkers. Have they taken your lead at all? A lot of the doctors have. A lot of doctors come to me personally. I take that as a compliment. All these internists come to me to manage internal medicine problems for them and other specialties too. Um, and I've helped a lot of them and, and they tell me and I appreciate that. Um, so whoever wants it, I'm happy to help them. I do it for free. All these people come to me, you know, they bring me their CDs to look at their films and they start asking me about their lab. So I enjoy all that, you know. Well, maybe it's time for a career change to become a lifestyle medicine doctor. I would love that. Yeah, I bet you'd be great. Well, True North is hiring. So let's hook you up with Dr. Goldhammer. <laughs> oh, gosh. I would love that. I so. yeah. Well, what I appreciate about your talks and so many people do is you really, when you go to a topic, you really unpack it. You don't just like give it lip service. You really uh, dig deep into the research on it. Yeah, I like to try to understand things at that deep level, molecular biochemistry levels to the extent that I can. Well, great. So autoimmune disease, thats it affects how many people does autoimmune disease affect? Uh, it's a very large percent of people. And to some extent, that depends on how you define it, because a lot of things previously not thought to be autoimmune actually are autoimmune. 
a lot of these intestinal disorders from irritable bowel syndrome to Crohn's to ulcerative colitis. And then a lot of these allergy syndromes are due to leaky gut. Because there's increased gut permeability, the antigens, meaning the food particles, for example, can get across that gut wall. And once they do, the immune system just sitting there on the other side of that gut wall and it will hyper react to them. I've seen people who had allergies when they were young and they improve their diet and the allergies go away. You know, not everybody's that fortunate, but the bottom line is you want that gut wall intact to protect yourself from all these problems, from the autoimmune diseases and from the allergies. Wow. Yeah, when you start adding them up, it gets real common because then we got lupus, we got, you know, polymyalgia rheumatica, scleroderma, it goes on and on, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves' toxicosis. there's a whole bunch of them. Wow, well, I can't wait to hear your talk. Well, thanks. Uh, you want me to do my slides? Sure. Okay, again, I'm on here. Let's see how I find them. Well, here we go. Yeah, click share screen. Okay. Now, how do I get back into the Zooms right here? I got to share my screen. No. Allow Zoom to share your screen. Or just, just share. I don't think we got to go into system preferences. No, I think it'll let me show. Um. Pull up your slides before you hit click share screen. All right. Um, okay, let me, let me, I'll open the presentation. Um, that, that has to be open first. Okay. Do you know, it's a little different in this computer. Here we go. Okay, this the show the talk is running. Now, how do you get into her alt tab or something? Is it option tab or what? Because I got to share it now. Or can oh. you minimize this? If you oh. click share screen and then you click on your presentation, it should work. Yeah, what's going on is we're on a new computer, and I got the kid here. He knows how to use this computer, but I don't really. Okay, uh, there you go. Perfect. Just put it in a view mode that's... Uh, okay, right. Now I'm on the slide mode and I will go into slideshow. Yes, that should work. Thank you. Perfect. Great, great. Okay, so this first slide, I call it the four horsemen of the obesity apocalypse. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about obesity lately. And so I made a mnemonic because I like having mnemonics. They improve long-term memory. And I called it MOOF. And I thought MOOF was a little bit funny for meat, oil, obesogens, and fructose. And then I thought of the four horsemen in the apocalypse. And I said, well, then we can make it a hoof, like the hoof of a horse. And so the four horsemen of the apocalypse, MOOF would just be meat, oil, obesogens, fructose. You can subtype with hoof the, the fat types nuts, seeds, avocados, and hoof animals. And uh, there's a beautiful painting here by Viktor Mikhailov Vaznetsov in 1887 of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Okay, so everybody's getting so fat and sick. And then here's what's funny too. Now there's some talk about a possible famine around the corner. And so, you know, Dr. McDougall had talked about that, how for an average person, it can take about 60 days to starve to death. And so after all this stuff on obesity, now let's talk about famine. So to keep it simple, I'd say, now we know what to do. 
Just do the opposite of what you would do to prevent getting fat. And that'll help you to keep the weight on and live longer. And you know, estrogen is a fat storage hormone. And for a guy, if he wants to increase his estrogen level, here's one thing that he could do to help him. Ask your girlfriend or wife to make a list of all your faults and then have her read it to you and explain each one. And the man's only allowed to answer, yes, dear. And that will really help to lower your testosterone level because testosterone you know, causes burning of fat and makes a person thinner. So you don't want that. You could also go to the web or cable TV and watch a bunch of chick flicks with her and then talk about your feelings. Make sure you try to really express your feelings. That will also help to increase your estrogen level. You can drink whole milk. It's loaded with estrogen. You could cover yourself with all these moisturizers, perfumes, colognes. They're all full of estrogenic preservatives. But just remember what Rodney Dangerfield said. There's a fine line between rubbing lotion on yourself and rubbing yourself with lotion. Okay, so, you know, just kidding around there, but all right. Um, a general idea to the format of these talks is I'll start out with some common basic info. I'll build into some biochemistry type details, molecular biology, and then AO is academic orgasm. Then I'll come back down. So if it seems like it's getting a little too technical at times, you know, I'm kind of got a variety of persons in the audience. Some are going to want that. I promise you I'll get back down to some basic, useful, practical, common sense stuff. Uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about was the vegan community and health insurance. Um, this basically vegans are paying too much for health insurance. And this is Lady Godiva and her husband was the Earl of Coventry and she felt he was being unfair to the people, excessive taxation. And she said, you should lower these taxes. He refused to repeal it unless she rode through the town naked on a horse, Lady Godiva. And she decided she's going to do it. So what I'm talking about here is there's different categories of disease. For example, the Asian populations get what is sometimes called Asian atherosclerosis, like in Japan, back in the 1960s and 70s. Lots of sodium. They're also smoking cigarettes. Um, diabetes will also do this, intracranial atherosclerosis. The typical sort of westernized high-fat diet especially produces carotid artery atherosclerosis and coronary artery atherosclerosis. Okay, and fried food causes a lot of diabetes. So if one looks at a chart here of the different diabetic patterns, you know, here's sort of the Western American pattern, causes lots of heart disease, impotence, cancer, um, East Asian with all the high sodium and the smoking. And here's the South Asian with all the fried food, a lot of disease. But what's the point? Low fat, low sodium vegan. They don't get any of this stuff. If low fat, low sodium vegans aren't getting these diseases, why should we have to pay such high in insurance? No taxation without representation. I think it's time that the low fat vegan community has declared a declaration, the vegan declaration of independence. There was a rumor that there were some women in the audience, but that has not been confirmed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Low fat, low sodium, no sofas vegans, they never get most of these chronic diseases. We demand lower health insurance premiums. We declare that not only is low fat vegan diet a reasonable option for prevention and treatment of chronic disease, it is usually the better version by far. Okay, diet and lifestyle improvement is superior to conventional medicine for treatment of chronic diseases. Conventional medicine defines chronic diseases as chronic because it never cures them. It has a 0% cure rate for all kinds of things, for diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease. All it does is give a pill. It does not cure these diseases. And that occurs in many other situations. Whereas in the low-fat vegan community, they routinely cure these things. The best health insurance you could have is to live and eat this way, very low fat, 100% vegan, no sofas. And then the other lifestyle things we've talked about before, get your sleep, get your exercise, get your sunshine for vitamin D, manage your stress, get along with family and friends, have your personal value system or religion, whatever worked out so 
It makes you more resilient. And here's a real simplified chart of it. I kind of call my approach the Spartan vegan approach. It's just real simple. You know, the basic lifestyle pillars here at the bottom, starches, fruits, veggies, and take a B12. Simple. Anybody could do this. Anybody could understand this. And, and basically, I'd almost summarize the talk. When you eat this way, live this way, all kinds of good things happen for your health. And when you don't, when you don't, when you go down the meat and the oils pathway, you end up fat and sick. Uh, okay, yeah, here's the summary of the talk. If you eat meat, oil, and UPFs as ultra-processed foods, bad things happen to your health. It, it just destroys your metabolism. Your metabolic system is sort of complex and delicate. It's not made for that. Um, so I said the low-fat, low-sodium vegan diet is like the holy grail of health. I have a little bit of a theme for this talk of chivalry and the knights and stuff, you know, sort of being like the immune system. But what I'm saying is it's already been found. Theoretically, the holy grail could heal almost any illness, okay? Um, and so we've already figured it out. So there's a nice painting here from like, you know, 1400s. All right, and the Sir Galahad was the only knight who could find the grail because he had to make himself worthy. He was without sin, for example, compared to Lancelot, who was fooling around with Guinevere, and therefore he had disqualified himself from uh, being able to seek and find the get the Holy Grail. So, anyways, to learn to make yourself worthy, you just got to study it and learn about it. Okay, this is a Sir Galahad painting here. Another thing I would say, and this is going to be a theme of this talk is going to come up is like, what's the difference in your ability to help people with their health and to heal people between knowing about nutrition and toxicology versus not knowing? It's like the difference between being a Gulliver or a Lilliputian, okay? And as a matter of fact, there's a lot of Lilliputians in conventional communities. They're sort of tying down the Gullivers, making it more difficult to help people. And of course, it's true. Most people are not motivated, not curious enough to learn about it, but it's good to know for the ones that can be helped and want to be helped what works. Okay. And I also have a friend here and, you know, he's lost some loved ones in his family as I have as well. And he said to me, what good is it to learn all this stuff when all the people you love are already dead? And I'm like, well, you know, the knowledge learned from the experience and the study is valuable. You can teach the people who are still around the younger people so they can help others to avoid these diseases. It has like a, an outward ripple effect and many may benefit. So after this lecture, you're going to be like a, a knight and you'll be knighted and you'll be ready to go out and, you know, fight the good fight to help other people have healthy, enjoyable lives. Okay. You like a, a healthy immune system. I'm going to talk a little bit of myself just briefly, because it's going to tie into the talk. You know, my whole life when I was young was being a wrestler. That's me, sophomore year of high school. It's probably junior year of high school. And um, I got injured then in the end of my uh, junior year in high school. And I kept trying to come back too early and getting re-injured. And the big 10 schools like Iowa, where I wanted to go drop me from their scholarship offer. So I ended up going to Stanford because the Schultz brothers were there, great coaches, but it was very difficult coming from Chicago. I was super lonely. I got re-injured at the beginning of the year. The coach was pissed off. He'd wasted a scholarship on me getting injured again. And I called my mom, said, I want to go home. She's like, no, 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 stick it out for one year. God doesn't want you to be a wrestler. He wants you to be a doctor. And I'm like, okay, mom, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go with that. Okay. And so I got really intense about it. And I saw, I saw a poster in the room of one of the seniors and the guy was an all American wrestler, one of my heroes. And it said, do not ask for an easier life because you are not going to get it. Great to become stronger because that is achievable. Now that really resonated with me. And of course I didn't realize at the time, this is decades ago, but that's kind of like what we're talking about, the low fat vegan diet. Everybody always wants the easier life, the quick fix. Give me a pill, give me a surgery and everything's better. I can don't have to change my behavior. But in reality, the thing that works is figure out how to become healthier, to become more resilient, to make your physiology stronger. That works. It takes more time, but it works 
most of the time. Okay. So that's me and my little high school, my little freshman college dorm and how lonely I was. I was looking at this calendar every day. I missed my girlfriend intensely. And man, it was, I learned about loneliness. I think it made me a better person because I know what it is like to be lonely. And then going to practice every day, getting my butt kicked every day. These are my, they're my coaches. This is David Schultz and his brother, Mark Schultz, both world and Olympic champions. Dave was closer to my size. So he kicked the crap out of me every day. Here's another guy who was a national champion, all American. And I get, he's my other training partner. I got my butt kicked every day with him too. This was our wall of fame, the Schultz brothers on top. And then the pictures of all the other wrestlers and competition. So, you know, that was my life studying and wrestling. And, um, you know, I kept getting better at school. It's a long story. I won't go into all the details, but you know, I wrote a book, medical students got a top board scores. Well, I had 99, my med school boards and my residency boards. I wrote another book about the academics and my med school picture. I show you this because the point I'm making is I did everything possible. I sort of felt like I had ruined my own life. I kept getting re-injured. I was mad at myself. And I'm like, thank God I have another opportunity to do something great that I like to try to become a great scientist or doctor. I am going to go for it 100%. I will not flinch or fail ever, ever. So I was so intense. Um, it's hard to explain, but I could wake up in the morning, study all day long. I never felt sorry for myself. I see a lot of students, they all feel sorry for themselves. Well, you know, it's fine. It's good to reward yourself with a workout and a meal. But what I'm trying to say was, I sort of felt like I had ruined my previous life as a wrestler. I am not going to screw up in, in this academic science doctor stuff. I'm going to work so hard. And that was my motivation. That's what I think was my secret. Lots of people are smarter than me, but they didn't have that motivation. I think that's the Alfred Adler inferiority principle of wanting to compensate for a previous problem. So this is my brother. I just show you him because there's one thing interesting about him. All the girls love my brothers. My brothers are both much better looking at me. He was a fantastic wrestler in high school, superstar. But in college, he just couldn't beat like the Iowa guys because he didn't have the energy. He'd run out of energy, and we didn't know why. And so he wasn't an All-American, although everyone expected him to be an All-American in college. And then he kept on wrestling and doing martial arts, jiu-jitsu and whatnot. And then he became a vegetarian. He's not a true vegan, okay? But as he improved his diet, he, he had exercise asthma, I think, from the excessive sodium and maybe some chemicals in the processed food. He then became a several-time world champion. You know, it's a senior division, but... You know, he's he's pretty awesome athlete. That's that's what I think was a turning point for him, though, improving his diet to increase his energy. Now, I just want to show you about uh, Jacqueline Dupre. She was a cellist. She was married to Daniel Barenboim. They're two of the greatest musicians in the world back in, you know, the 1970s, early 1980s. And the relevance is she had multiple sclerosis. They're rich and famous, access to everything. And she, you know, died pretty soon after her diagnosis. I don't know the exact amount, about 10 years. I just show you this because conventional treatment with MS often does not get a great outcome, okay? And the way I learned about Jacqueline Dupre was, I'm gonna show you the next picture here. My girlfriend in high school was like a dream, okay? She was a piano player. She ended up going to Juilliard and she sort of like civilized me. She taught me all about classical music. I would go to the classical music concert, concerts with her. Her mother was a wonderful lady. Her mother was a biochemist, okay? And when I was in medical school, we eventually drifted apart. It's a long story, but we drift apart because a, a musician and a doctor don't really go together. She wasn't just a musician who liked music. She was a professional musician. And, you know, they want to play in a show at night, like Les Miserables comes to town. She's going to be the one playing piano at the show. So I, um, you know, a doctor wants to go to bed early, wake up early in the morning. We, and then I was so far away, you know, going to college in California. And it's a long story than her going to Juilliard. So we drifted apart, but man, we, that's the reason, not for any other reason. And um, anyway, so the reason I'm telling you about her is 
Uh, I was in med school, you know, let's say about a junior in med school. I was a very confident guy, you know, just crushed everything academically, et cetera. And she's like, well, you know, her mom had lupus. Is there anything I can do to help? And I said, well, you got to go see the best rheumatologist. You know, at the time, that's what everyone thought. I, I never imagined I could study the disease and contribute anything useful, no more than a, a rheumatologist. But the point is, um, we sent her to the rheumatologist. She had a terrible outcome. She developed blood clots and embolized to her leg. She had to have her leg amputated. Then to the brain, she had a stroke and she died. It was awful. It was a terrible outcome. And I sort of like, why wasn't the specialist able to save her? It never occurred to me that I could have maybe done more to help her. So there's a beautiful painting here of Girls at the Piano by Renoir, 1892. And her sister was a great musician as well. Um, and this was what it was like, those long distance relationship. You know, here the lady is tracing the shadow of her, you know, her husband, boyfriend, I don't know. Um, and then the ships are waiting down below because you miss each other so much. This painting is called The Shadow by uh, Edmund Layton. And this painting here called Meeting on the Turret Stairs, Frederick William Burton, you know, the two lovers are sort of saying goodbye to each other. He has to go off. And this is this was voted the most popular beloved painting ever in the history of Iron. This guy's an Irish artist. Um, it's a beautiful painting. And that's what it felt like. It was an intense, sad moment. Okay, so here's lupus, all right? And lupus is associated with leaky gut, as are most of the other autoimmune diseases. So here's a normal gut. You've got a gut wall. It's a single cell layer. That's it. Just one little tiny cell is the barrier between your intestinal contents and inside your body. And you've got a lot of immune cells sitting right behind it. These are dendritic cells. These little lines connecting the two cells are called the tight junctions. And you need those tight junctions intact. You have to eat your fiber, your plant foods to maintain this gut wall. Because when you don't maintain the gut wall, all kinds of problems happen. Bacteria get through the gap between the cells. They also release their toxin, LPS, lipopolysaccharide. It's also called endotoxin. You'll form intense immune responses, which if they stay local, you'll get gut inflammation, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, that sort of thing. However, if you also have animal proteins here, especially dairy, for example, those larger chunks of protein, normally you should only absorb a tripeptide at a time, meaning three amino acids. Some people say as much as eight, you know, an octopeptide, but still tiny little pieces that are not going to have significant identifiable sequences on them. But when you absorb a bigger chunk of protein, you know, getting through from the gut into the, you know, submucosal layers, laminopropia, for example, your body will form an immune response to it. And given that the amino acid sequences in the animal foods can be similar to human amino acid sequences, the antibodies will cross rack with their own body. This is how it happens. Um, that's called molecular mimicry when the amino acid sequence mimics ours. Okay, another word you'll sometimes, well, there's a couple words you're gonna hear and we're not gonna get into too much of the technical vocabulary, but just so you've heard them before, MAMPs, PAMPs, and DAMPs. Okay, so microbial associated molecular pattern, something the immune system recognizes as foreign and they need to make a response to. A PAMPs is a pathogen associated molecular pattern. So these are quite similar. There's also another category of patterns that the immune system responds to called DAMPs, and that's a damage associated molecular pattern. That goes into a lot more detail. We're not really gonna have much time to get into DAMPs, but DAMPs would mean, for example, you ingest a toxic chemical, it damages some tissue, and now that tissue has changed its structure such that the immune system recognizes it as uh, something that has to be removed from the body, um, and it'll react to that. That's actually a really interesting topic. And so what I'm getting at is I was a little pissed off. Okay. I, I studied 
you know, until I was got the drop falling over and no one ever told me about leaky gut. And, you know, I love that girl and her mother and she's dead in a miserable, awful death. Okay. And, you know, we can explain this in, you know, 10 minutes here in this lecture. Why wasn't that taught to me? Now, don't get me wrong. People didn't know as much then as they do now, but it's still not in the medical textbooks. I own the Ivy League standard textbook of pathology. It's about 2000 pages long, 2015 edition. There is zero mention of leaky gut in the autoimmune diseases chapter. It's not even mentioned. The most important thing to know in all of autoimmune disease pathophysiology. It's ridiculous. That's not in there. Okay. Um, so anyways. Okay. Gut wall vocabulary. If anybody's interested in more of the details, I sort of give you a lot of definitions of all the key terms. If you decide you want to read the, the research papers. Um, here's another slide that shows a little more information. The enterocytes are the main cells of the gut wall. They're the ones they're called enterocyte because enteric tract is the name of the gut. Site means cell. So these are gut cells in the enteric tract. These are the main absorption cells that absorb the food. Um, then there's two mucus layers. They're sort of the inner mucus layer in contact with the gut wall. And that contains a lot of antimicrobial chemicals. These cells in particular, the panath cells, secrete antimicrobial peptides and like these alpha defensins, and those block the bacteria from coming close. They don't want the bacteria getting too close to the gut wall. These cells right here are called goblet cells, and they secrete mucus. So you've got this inner mucus layer full of these antimicrobial chemicals, and then you have outer mucus layer where you will have some bacteria. These are the dendritic cells. They're sort of a residential macrophage. This one's specifically called a residential macrophage. They're essentially almost the same thing. You can think of them all in purposes of our talk, same thing. And the dendritic cell will even extend a little tentacle-like process up into the mucus layer and it'll sort of sample if any uh, bacteria are getting in there or any LPS and whatnot. These are some lymphocytes. Uh, T lymphocytes come from the thymus. That's what the T is for. B lymphocytes come from the bone marrow. That's what the B is for. The B lymphocytes are the ones that make um, antibodies and they'll become plasma cells. The T lymphocytes are the ones that are sort of are the, they run the immune system basically. Okay. So uh, let's see anything else interesting on here. Um, we talked about it. If you start getting a leaky gut and pathogens get below this layer. These intent, these immune cells are all sitting right there. It's called GALT, GALT-associated lymphatic tissue. They'll form an intense response, um, and that can cause bloating, diarrhea. It can even in, injure the nerves of the gut wall and lead to constipation over time. Okay. Okay, so this is a nice painting here. Um, it's all about the gut wall. This was actually from the Revolutionary War when the Hessians, the German mercenaries, you know, got through the fort in New York and they burst through and then they all got the big bayonets and they they crushed the Americans on that day. And so what I'm saying is you need to maintain that gut wall. Nothing good happens when the bacteria and their endotoxins get across. Only bad things happen. You must maintain that gut wall. And it reminds me of a movie. There was a movie called A Few Good Men starring Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. So Jack Nicholson was Colonel Jessup in charge of maintaining this one defensive position, you know, for the Americans. And he was a military lawyer, Lieutenant Caffey, Tom Cruise. And so he's questioning him. And Colonel Jessup says, you want answers? Lieutenant says, I think I'm entitled to them. Jessup, you want answers? Caffey, Lieutenant Caffey, I want the truth. Jessup, you can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls. And those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You, I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. 
and my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. That's from the movie A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. Okay, so what does fiber do? Fiber is your best friend. Fiber is the guard of your gut wall. The most important thing you could do would be start eating more fiber, which comes from plant foods. Plants have fiber because fiber by definition is a cell wall of a plant. Meat has no fiber. The cells of animals are different than the cells of plants. The cells of plants have fiber in their cell wall. Meat does not. We actually make our plasma membranes more rigid by adding cholesterol to them, okay? So it's a very different thing. Whenever you're eating meat, you're eating cholesterol. Whenever you're eating plants, you're eating fiber. That's what you want to do. Now, the average American only eats about 12 to 15 grams per day. It is recommended to eat about at least 25 grams a day for a woman, 38 grams for a man. But optimally, when you really study this stuff, Burkett says he thinks it's normal for us to be eating over 100 grams a day. Fiber does everything good for your gut. Uh, and by the way, you hear all the stuff about microbiome this, microbiome that. For our purposes, there's really only two major types of gut microbiome, okay? There's the, the one that comes from eating a plant-based diet. That's the good one. And the one that comes from eating meat and processed food, that's the bad ones, okay? And so what that means is we've sort of been on this planet for a long time with a plant diet and the plant-based bacteria, they're symbiotic with us, meaning that we help each other. Um, they convert the dietary fiber into SCFA, which means short chain fatty acids. There's a two carbon acetate and a three carbon propionate. Those mostly travel through the portal veins of the liver and get made into different types of fats. You can make your even carbon fats which is the most common one, like palmitate with this, you can make your odd number of carbon fats with the three carbon propionate being added in. But butyrate is the most important one. It has four carbons. You can just think of the alkane nomenclature, butane, four carbons, okay? So anyways, uh, butyrate is the main thing that feeds. Colonocyte just means the lining cells of the colon. And it uses that energy to make tight junctions. It also does other things. It blocks an enzyme called histone deacetylase that's relevant to cell replication. It prevents cancer. Okay. It's your best thing you could do to help prevent colon cancers, get more fiber down there. In addition, there's, there's, there's other reasons why that's true. But what I'm trying to say is that fiber does like everything you could wish for. Um, they're symbiotic with us. So basically when I say symbiotic, why are they so good to us? Because those plant-based bacteria, they, our colon is a good apartment for them. They want to live there. They want to keep us alive and healthy versus the bad bacteria, they don't give an S-H-I-T whether we live or die, okay? They just, you know, are there for the party, all right? So they're happy to erode through our mucus layer. They're happy to, you know, erode through our enterocytes, our gut wall. Uh, they are not symbiotic with us. Fiber does other good things. It adds water to the stool, liquefies the stool. So when you poop, it's nice and soft like a cow patty. Normally, you should have about two to five bowel movements per day. Instead of, you know, if you're constipated, you don't got any fiber, you're just eating a lot of processed food and uh, meat and oil and whatnot, then you're going to have hard goat pellet-like stools, Tootsie Rolls, and you're probably only pooping less than once or twice a day, constipated. Well, when you're constipated, you're pushing a little hard at defecation, um, and that causes back pressure called abdominal pressure syndrome, abbreviated here APS. Well, that back pressure, uh, first of all, it'll cause diverticulosis, outpouching bulges in the sigmoid colon down low from the back pressure. And if one of those pops, you get diverticulitis. I'm going to show you a picture in a second here, but just so you heard of it, appendicitis too, because you get a rock of stool because uh, the stool's dry in the right side of the colon. Um, I can look at a CAT scan and go, that's probably a meat eater. That's probably a plant eater, just because most of them are meat and processed food eaters. But I can just see they're going to have dry stool in the right side of the colon. 
Um, fiber also sweeps out estrogenic chemicals and it sweeps out excessive cholesterol. So it optimizes your estrogen levels and your cholesterol levels. It does lots of good things. Okay, now this is a picture of abdominal pressure syndrome. The guy who really figured out abdominal pressure syndrome was Dennis Burkett. He was a missionary doctor in Africa. And he actually discovered something called Burkitt's lymphoma first. And then he became the head of epidemiology. And then everybody started sending him information from all over the, the continent. And he put it all together. So what's the point? When a person's constipated, down here is the rectum. They're straining at the stool. The back pressure causes swelling of the veins. Those are called hemorrhoids. And we'll follow this back pressure upwards. It's transmitted to the sigmoid colon that causes bulges in the colon wall. That's called diverticulosis. Most Americans have that after 50. I see that on CAT scans all the time, every day. When one of them pops, um, stool leaks into the, the fat of the abdomen called the mesenteric fat, and it causes intense inflammation. That's diverticulitis. You throw the itis on there, that indicates inflamed. You know, most hospitals admit like at least one patient a day for diverticulitis, super common. And quite often they have recurrent episodes and they end up getting surgery. They take the sigmoid out. That's called sigmoidectomy. Ectomy means you took something out. Okay, so that's the initial back pressure. We talked about the stool over here. This is the right side of the colon, the ascending colon. The lowermost part's called the cecum and the little projection coming off it is called the appendix. And the dry stool is so dried out that it sometimes becomes hard like a rock. Lith means stone, so a pinnacle lith. You'll form a stone in the appendix near its junction with the cecum. And then you've got mucus glands in the distal appendix that secrete mucus. And because the mucus cannot get past the appendical lift, it will stretch out the appendix and make it pop. And when it pops, it spills stool into the abdomen. That's an acute appendicitis. Okay, so um, that's how you get appendicitis. That used to be treated always with surgery. Now, sometimes they'll just drain the abscess if they think it's reasonably walled off. But I've had some patients where I've had to drain, you know, seven abscesses and couldn't even get all the pus out of their bellies. It's a big mess, a potential disaster. You don't want it. Nowadays, you can diagnose that pretty early on CAT scan, but you don't want it. Meat eaters get much more appendicitis uh, because their stool is dry on the right side of the colon. The back pressure also of the abdomen is transmitted to the esophagus. And the esophagus then will pouch upward and cause a hiatal hernia. And there's a hiatal hernia projecting into the chest. They'll get reflux of their gastric contents with all that acid, and that'll cause a symptom of heartburn, and that's typically called GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. Over time, that chronic acid will cause scarring of the hiatal hernial wall. That's called a Barrett's esophagus, which is a pre-malignant lesion, meaning that it's predisposed to become cancer. And then eventually they'll get cancer, esophageal cancer. When I was a young guy, most of the cancer in the esophagus was, we call it smoker drinker cancer, squamous cell carcinoma. But nowadays there's so many fat people with gastroesophageal reflux, they tend to get um, this adenotype carcinoma, slightly different type of cancer uh, cell type. And the point is that's from gastroesophageal reflux, super common. All right. Also the same thing causes a lot of gallstones. Um, cholelithiasis is the medical term for that. And this is abdominal pressure syndrome. Oh, it's even worse than that. I forgot to say the back pressure can be transmitted down into the male scrotum. So they get uh, varicoceles, dilatation to the veins, and that can be a big deal. It can be cause chronic discomfort in the scrotum. It'll also cause infertility, sort of heating things up down there. The inguinal hernia, is when some of the bowel pops below this inguinal ligament right here. That's increased with abdominal pressure syndrome. And then here's one that a lot of ladies especially find very interesting, varicose veins. This chronic back pressure in the abdomen for straining at the stool is transmitted into the veins of the leg. This will be the femoral vein, for example. And then that's transmitted downward into the leg veins and it could cause failure of the valves of the leg and lead to varicose veins. So it is true. Being constipated can make you infertile, and it can give you varicose veins as well as do all these other things. Other reasons why you want that fiber. 
This was a picture of my mother. And I show you this also because, and that's my father. And basically, you know, my mom had cancer and she did better than was predicted. She's only told she's going to live two or three years. She ended up living about 11 years. And her oncologists were super nice. They loved my mother. They were friends of the family. They were her, the, the wife of the oncologist was a nurse and actually stayed at our house for two weeks to take care of my mother. And they kept her alive longer than, you know, she was expected to. But if I say to myself, you know, because I didn't know any of this nutrition and toxicology, I might have been able to keep my mother alive longer. Look at Ruth Heidrich. Look at a lot of some of these other women who went low fat vegan. They're alive decades later. You know, can I prove that all work? Of course not. But I wish I had known that. Would I have been able to convince my mother? Maybe not. But, you know, I was super close. My mom was like my best friend in the whole world. If only I had known that. And I was kind of a little pissed off because I did everything to learn everything I could. I was like a vacuum to suck up all the information and all the books and all my clinical experiences. And I could have saved my mother. I just showed this to you here because there's a very funny story about my mom. I don't even know if I'm going to tell you the joke, but see how the, this is a little grandchild with my mother. This is what it was like being around my mom. She was always making jokes, always making jokes. Like I had a really fat scout master in the Boy Scouts. I'm in sixth grade and he was going on and on, you know, about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I don't know what it was, but my mom was a little annoying for him for some reason. He was a real fat guy. Not many people were fat at that time. And my mom said, do you know why Mr. Sullivan is, is sad? Because he kind of had a sad look on his face and I didn't know why. You know, I'm a sixth grade boy. I'm not that I'm not that observant, okay? She said, because he can't find his peenie. And I know that's stupid, but it was so bizarre and unexpected and funny that I've like remembered it all these years. And, and my mom would say things like that all the time. She was always making funny little jokes. Um, and don't get me wrong, we like Mr. Sullivan, he, but he was whatever. All right, so this is a little bit about cancer. Dr. McDougall sort of has a great lecture on breast cancer where he talks about the fact that most of the time, by the time you can diagnose a cancer, it's macroscopically visible on CAT scans and other imaging tests. Usually they've already got micrometastatic disease, um, you know, in the body. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> chemo usually doesn't work as well when there's metastatic disease, you know, micrometastatic disease, not quite the same as macrometastatic disease. But what I'm still saying is, it doesn't work as most well as most people think. And here's a one gram tumor, you know, so let's say something, you know, smaller than your thumbnail. It's shedding a million cancer cells in your blood in one day. You need your immune system to remove that, okay? And then here's some of the big papers for anybody who wants to study it. He reviewed thousands of, of, of the chemo papers. Um, and he came to the conclusion, other than in special instances, testicular cancer, small cell cancer metastatic, and there's other ones too, acute lymphocytic leukemia. There's some other ones too, but a lot of the common ones once it's metastatic, it doesn't make that much difference, okay? So what I'm trying to say is people should learn how to help themselves rather than keep on expecting someone else is going to save them, all right? Here's another one of these, you know, big meta-analysis reviews, and it really didn't have that much significant effect in increasing five-year survival, and you know it's certainly going to have side effects. And so there's a quote, you know, it's kind of famous here, if a doctor probably can't save you, then what can you do? Uh, maybe you can learn how to save yourself. And that's kind of the point of a lot of these talks I'm giving and trying to help you. If you eat a poor diet and don't exercise or sleep well enough, no doctor can save you. If you eat a low-fat vegan diet and exercise and sleep, you probably don't need a doctor, anonymous. So there's a lot of truth in that statement, okay? Uh, you know, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. You know, my mother's from Puerto Rico. My father's from Ireland. I'm just gonna show you a few things about my father's story because it's relevant too. This is my great-grandfather, and there's my great uncle. Well, they're not my great grandfather, just my grandfather. And there's one, I guess you call him great uncle. He was a bicycle champion, national champion in Ireland. There he was. Look at the leg muscles. And this lady was a nurse and she took care of a lot of young guys. Life was pretty tough in Ireland. The British were very harsh and cruel. 
to the Irishman. Okay. And man, she saved, she saved my father's life. He was wounded. He was in prison. She saved him. She did a million things to get him out and saved his life. They got married. She's a really smart lady. And um, here she is, my grandmother, my grandfather in Ireland. There's my father. You know, he didn't know any better. He's smoking a cigarette with his brother. And this is a beautiful iron. This is what it looks like. A bunch of rocks, you know, outlining all the fields and very green. Um, so here's my dad with two of his brothers. He was sort of an engineer physicist and he kept drinking a lot of milk, whole fat milk. And he had a myocardial infarction. He died when he's 51 years of age. Um, this other uncle, he had cancer, but he hung in there and lived. He was a little bit mean, but he motivated me to read. That's a separate story. We'll talk about that some other time. But the reason I want to show this is because of my father. Oh, by the way, his son, you know, uh, became United States Olympic uh, representative in the bicycling. Um, sort of like he got the grandfather's uh, uh, thing. Okay, so my dad had chest pain playing tennis. And, you know, he went to the cardiologist, had a cardiac cath, told him they had left main stenosis, need to go for cabbage. That was many, many years ago, about 23 years ago. At that time, I knew about the Dr. Ornish diet. I told my dad to, you know, be more of a vegetarian, but I didn't really understand it in, in, in depth. I wasn't strong enough to be able to tell him, no, you don't need surgery. You just need to go vegan. And so the cardiologist insisted. He said, oh, he's got a widowmaker, left main disease. He could die at any time. He needs open heart surgery. So he went for the open heart surgery. I stayed with him in the hospital. They ran him real hypotensive post-op. I couldn't believe it. It was something like 90 over 60, 85 over 60. I was kind of freaked out by it. But they said, oh, we don't want him to bleed out as anastomosis, a surgical, you know, connection plug-in sites. Um, and he tolerated it fine. You know, he probably had pretty good open intracranial arteries. But four years later, while he was shoveling snow, he dissected his vertebral artery and had a right posterior cerebral artery stroke. He had to retire. The relevance being they staple the left internal mammary artery to the left anterior descending. It's called a lemon to the LAD. And if that artery wasn't stapled, he probably wouldn't have dissected it. Um, so anyways... Again, I sort of feel like I had failed. You know, here I am, you know, Mr. Arrogant Young Hotshot Doctor. My mom's dying of cancer. My father's, you know, got worsening heart disease. And I'm going to show you that I had become fat. Um, and it's like, how could all this happen? If I really know medicine and health so well, my sister-in-law mocked me. She said, okay, Mr. Doctor, if you're such a good doctor, why are you so fat? I became fat. This was sort of my early to mid-30s. Um, you know, I did a lot in one year. I, I tried to do a double fellowship. I authored this textbook of imaging guided surgery called interventional radiology. That's like the best publishing in a company in medicine. And so I kind of woke up and realized, you know what? I'm fat. My parents are sick. I'm becoming sick. I need to uh, really figure out what's going on here. Because, you know, I went to all my doctor friends. They couldn't help me. They all just told me, take this pill, take this pill. And I knew that wasn't the answer. Um, and I was scared. I'm going to be a fat, stupid, impotent diabetic. And my family's all, you know, making fun of me. So that's when I started to really intensely read about nutrition. Every free moment I had was devoted to trying to figure this out. What had happened? Is it possible to respond to these diseases? And sort of, I like this picture here, Aeneas carrying Anchises, his father out from Troy. The idea of you learn what you can, the wisdom of the elders, you pass it on to the younger generation. You have to just you know, accept the sadness and tragedies you experience. This painting is really the same theme. It's the last day of Pompeii, but it's, I think it's even a better painting. It's just beautiful. So in a sense, that's kind of what I think I did and what I'm doing here. I had a lot of sadness. I saw my parents both die and uh, I saw my girlfriend's mother die and plenty of other situations, but I've learned a lot and I've studied a lot and I can pass on this knowledge to you, the audience, that hopefully you won't have to go through these things for yourself or your family. So I love this painting here. It's a brand new day. Kind of like that song by Van Morrison, Brand New Day. It's beautiful. Okay. Or Morning is Broken by Cat Stevens. This one's called Above the Clouds at Sunrise by Frederick Edwin Church, 1848. Just beautiful. So 
there is good reason to be hopeful. As you understand these diseases, there's actually a lot you could do. Um, and sort of what's it going to come down to? My theme of health is very much like you want to be like Adam and Eve, but we'll still keep the indoor plumbing and heating. Okay, this is the best painting of Adam and Eve by uh, Jan Bruegel and Peter Paul Rubin from 1615. So, and then in Genesis, it says, then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of the earth and every free, every tree, which has fruit, it shall be food for you. So what's the point? If you eat the stuff that grows outside the plant foods, and by the way, they were supposed to, you know, get along with the animals and be nice to them. Okay. Um, if you eat these plant foods, you're going to be healthy uh, most of the time. You get your sunshine, you're outdoors, you're working together, helping each other. All that stuff creates healthy, happy people. Okay. So now we're going to start talking about what are some of the problems? What's getting people so sick? So for, for the typical autoimmune disease, the main focus is how can you prevent leaky gut? Maintain that gut wall. Um, and then as it turns out, when you talk about high fat diet, high fat diet causes lots of problems. The first one we'll briefly mention here is low grade endotoxemia, especially from eating meat. And what that means is LPS, which is uh, bacterial endotoxin from gram negative bacteria. There's also an LTA from gram positive bacteria that gets into the blood with leaky gut and it causes endotoxemia. Emia means something's in the blood. Okay. And then LPS, it's prothrombotic, causes a lot of other problems. And so this right here, this paper is a systematic review of what causes leaky gut. Leaky gut in the medical literature is typically referred to as increased intestinal permeability. And basically it's the same stuff for the most part. There's a little more to it, but it's, it's a very strong overlap of the same thing that caused atherosclerosis, coronary artery disease, hypertension. So let's see what this article says. Elevated levels of pro-inflammatory markers, dyslipidemia, so high fat in the blood, hyperglycemia, diabetes, insulin resistance, you know, pre-diabetes, diabetes, um, obesity, consumption of the Western style diet were the strongest risk factors for altered intestinal permeability, meaning the strongest risk factors for leaky gut. There it is. Okay. Now this is just a little more detail. If anyone is interested in that, all kinds of bad things are happening. Once you start getting leaky gut, you get this whole vicious cycle going. Uh, for example, um, it's almost too small to read here. I'll show you in a, another slide here in a moment, what happens with the bile acids from eating meat versus eating plant foods. But you apoptosis means programmed cell death. The hydrogen sulfide, I'll show you on another slide in a moment, but it'll cause apoptosis, death of enterocytes. And that causes a massive increase in leaky gut. Um, as LPS and some of these other chemicals get behind the gut wall, deep to the gut wall, they will then damage, for example, the goblet cells to make mucus and you'll start making less mucus. Some of the pathogenic bacteria, they'll eat through the mucus layer and thin it. Um, and so what I'm saying is you get this whole vicious cycle going. So you want to stop that vicious cycle. How do you do it? Stop eating the meat and oils and start eating the plant foods with the fiber. Okay. Um, uh, you also get different bacterial flora. When you don't have the fiber, the good bacteria, they live on the fiber. They love the fiber. That's what keeps them happy. And they crowd out the bad bacteria. When you don't have that fiber, you get a proliferation of the bad bacteria like this one, desulfovibrio. And that's the one that converts the taurine bile acids. Taurine bile acids are a type of bile acid made in the liver that's more common in meat eaters. Uh, plant eaters tend to get more of a glycine uh, conjugation for their bile acids. Um, once you don't have the fiber, you can't make the short chain fatty acids. You can't maintain your tight junction. Okay. Um, and then, like I said, it gets made into hydrogen sulfide and that's going to cause problems. It's going to induce enterocyte apoptosis, cell death. You get worsening leaky gut and you get a markedly increased risk of cancer. Um, so there's more than one mechanism of leaky gut. But what I'm trying to show you is with the high fat diet, especially the high meat diet and the oils and the processed foods, you get progressively worsening le leaky gut and more problems. Okay. 
this is just a slide showing, you know, the liver makes bile. It's uh, like an emulsifier to facilitate digestion of fats. It pulls them into the aqueous phase. There's two phases, the oil phase, if you will, hydrophobic phase and the hydrophilic phase, the aqueous phase. Bile is uh, an emulsifier, meaning that it's, it's sort of bipolar, amphiphilic, partly polar, partly nonpolar. And that means it can pull fatty material into the aqueous phase, into the water phase. So it could be digested by the intestinal enzymes, like from the pancreas, lipase, you know, tri uh, tripin and stuff, and for example. Okay, so anyways, the sulfate-reducing bacteria making hydrogen sulfide, um, that's going to cause more damage to your gut wall and increase your risk of cancer. Um, this illustration here is funny. It's from a paper. And why the reason why I thought this was funny was they show the effect of different diets on the gut wall. And so it's obvious that the ketogenic diet is a lousy diet for your gut wall because there's a lack of fiber. It's obvious that the Western diet is a lousy diet for your gut wall because there's a lack of fiber. But here's why I thought this paper was funny. Is they then try to claim that the Mediterranean is a good diet. But that's ridiculous because in the Mediterranean diet, you're eating olive oil. They say chicken's okay. Uh, nuts. Nuts are really sort of a little bit of a borderline food. Let's call it yellow light. Um, the wheat. Now, most people don't have a problem with gluten, but some do. But they also allow, allow wine. Alcohol is an obviously toxic to the gut bacteria and to the gut wall. Fish, cheese. So you got the animal protein. Cheese is the worst, you know, too, with all the risk of autoimmune disease, including multiple sclerosis and eggs. So it's that's a ridiculous statement. That's why I'm trying to say is you need to know something so you don't take all these so-called uh, experts you know when to take them with a grain of salt because it's ridiculous to say the Mediterranean diet is the best diet, okay? But I still thought the, the graphics on this uh, paper were kind of good. Same paper as that last slide. All right, so here's a checklist of some of the things that cause leaky gut. So basically, what would I do if I had an autoimmune disease? Well, I'd go through the checklist of everything that causes it. First of all, fix the diet. And then these are some secondary things to be aware of, you know? Antibiotics will kill the gut, the bacteria. They'll kill the good bacteria sometimes. And then you're stuck with the bad ones. You get leaky gut. Uh, alcohol. I recommend not a drop. There's nothing good about alcohol. You don't need to drink it. Even one drink a day is not healthy. That's been shown that that was bogus, that old study that used to claim that. Um, meat. There's nothing good about meat. Multiple ways it, it worsens leaky gut and increases risk of autoimmune disease. This is just another thing too, the whole xenocyllitis stuff. Okay. Processed food is basically a poison. Um, uh, the emulsifiers are toxic. Again, those are amphiphilic, like an amphibian can live on land and water, meaning that they're both hydrophilic and hydrophobic. Um, and those types of things too can disrupt the gut wall. Um, they'll cause thinning of the mucus layer. Uh, let's see what else. Herbicides like uh, the GP glyphosate, that was initially made to be an antibiotic. It kills good gut bacteria and it'll also inhibit peristalsis. So you get slowing down of the flux of the intestinal contents, the so succus entericus, and um, it'll can cause constipation by causing uh, slowed down peristalsis, meaning gut contractions. It can cause SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, because it's not, the lack of peristalsis is not moving the bacteria in the food further distal enough. So they'll start to accumulate in small bowel. Normally, most of the bacteria are just in the colon. Okay. Um, other, you know, emulsifiers and chemicals and preservatives in processed food can also be toxic to the gut wall. And those food dyes can. Aluminum is sometimes in processed food. A lot of times food's wrapped in aluminum. There's other organic solvents, nanoparticles, all kinds of bad things. Basically, you don't want to be eating that stuff, okay? I think that's a lot of how people get sick. They gradually keep accumulating all these mild, slow poisons, and it sort of nickels and dimes them into decrepitude. Um Better to eat organic if you got the choice. In particular, I recommend organic, especially for BT corn and for uh, soy because because of the herbicides used with them are pretty toxic. The, the BT corn comes from the term Bacillus thuringiensis, 
thuriginous. And the gist of it is that this bacillus makes a pesticide. It's registered as a pesticide that kills insects by punching holes in their gut. Well, guess what? If you eat that BT corn, for some people, it's punching holes in their gut lining and causing leaky gut and problems. Um, uh, too much sodium can make the immune system uh, hyperreactive, sometimes increased risk of asthma, like my brother had exercise-induced asthma and um, some other problems. So this is just some of the problems, you know, some articles about BT corn. Uh, and they can find this uh, in the person's blood. The specific pesticide associated with BT corn production is, is CRY1AB, okay? Um, and this gets into people's blood. All right, um, more things. We talked in the past about EDCs, estrogen disrupting chemicals. I talked about plenty in my previous lectures. Uh, the other thing is leaky gums, poor dentition. If you got leaky gums uh, with poor dentition, you could be getting bacteria into your blood just from your mouth. I can also tell you, I look at you know tons and tons of demented brains. Almost every single demented brain has poor dentition. Okay, you know I'm 59, just about 59. I got all my teeth. My teeth are fine. Okay, take care of your teeth. You know they're they're part of your in a sense your your gut wall. Your mouth's part of your gut, and um, bacteria can get access right to your blood and cause all kinds of problems if you don't take care of your teeth. You know. Most important thing is avoid really acidic foods, avoid um, really sweet stuff, and immediately clean your teeth afterwards if you eat anything sweet, especially things like soda pop's really bad. Soda pop, you know, it's not only super sweet, it's sticky, so it sticks to your teeth. Um, high fructose corn syrup, uh, that actually is associated with leaky gut. Vegetable oils are toxic to the gut lining. Some medications, NSAIDs, aspirin, uh, PPI, uh, all cause problems with the gut wall. Um, chlorine in the water, you don't want that. Nice to have a carbon filter at your house. You don't want F minus either. Um, I recommend having a whole house carbon water filter that gets all the chlorine out and then reverse osmosis in the kitchen, remove F minus, or the best thing is to have well water and test the well water first, uh, before you buy that house, um, to make sure it's good. I recommend getting a toothpaste that does not have F minus in there. It's neurotoxic. You don't want that. It's another slow poison. Um, the aluminum companies negotiated to get it in there and claimed it benefits teeth, but I'm just telling you, if you can avoid it, it's preferable to avoid it. Um, it can also cause damps, damage the tissue and, and, and lead them to becoming recognized by the immune system as damps. Um, dishwasher soap. Uh, you know, soaps can all function like emulsifiers as detergents and can damage you know, the lining of cells. You know, I rinse my plate or my bowl off if they're coming out of the dishwasher. You know, um, if I get teased about that, so what? And does it really help? It might. You don't always know. If something's easy to do, why not do it? Artificial sweeteners are not healthy for the gut wall. Nonstick cookware. You don't want to be using that stuff uh, like Teflon and all that. It's best not to use that. Better to cook on stainless steel. Okay. Uh, this was something that, you know, in some of these processed foods, like some of these processed uh, bread and biscuits, when they and analyze these things, they're finding weird little particles in them. Ceramic, metallic debris, um, I'll just tell you something a little funny here. You know, I got relatives also from Poland. Okay. And they tease me whenever I say something they don't agree with, they call me a Steinchik. So a Steinchik was this guy, he was like a court jester advisor. And basically he was sort of brooding and he was, you know, he, he took the life too seriously, perhaps. So basically when you call somebody a Steinchik, what they're basically saying is don't spoil our fun. You party pooper, uh, obsessive compulsive mope. Okay. Who worries too much. And the gist of that, like, like my wife bought some plates at a garage sale or something. Okay. And they were painted. So I bought a lead testing kit and tested them all for lead and they had no lead on them. She's like, well, the guy told me there was no lead. I'm like, well, how do you know if he's telling you the truth? But, um, so what I, I felt it was worth doing. I tested all the, the painted 
uh, cookware that it didn't have lead in it because I wanted to know. And none of it did. So, you know, you still test. I like to be certain about things to an extent that's possible. Um, psychological stress and excessive can cause leakage of the gut wall. I think maybe because it causes ischemia. Also, the cortisol doesn't help for maintaining it. Um, stress equivalents are things like sleep deprivation, caffeine. I, I don't think caffeine's a health food. I think there's a lot of problems with it. I kind of talked about that in my last lecture, but people think coffee is a health food. It's not tea. I don't think those are health foods. Just, so you know, you can do whatever you want, but I'm telling you, I studied them kind of closely. Okay. Corticosteroids, part of the stress response and caffeine just raises the same hormones as a stress response. Corticosteroids, you know, the cortisol and, uh, the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline. All right, gluten and gliadin. Gliadin is the breakdown product of gluten. Some people are pretty sensitive to that. The guy who's written the most about that is Alessio Fasano, MD. He's a pediatric gastroenterologist from Harvard. He's like the discoverer of zonulin, the chemical that also can open up the tight junctions of the gut wall. So I like him. He's a pretty bright guy, but he's not. he doesn't know nutrition. Okay, he's a great scientist and physician in his own field, but he's, he's not. he doesn't know nutrition. And there's a lot of doctors that are like that. They're great at discovering a lot of things and great in their own field, but they don't know nutrition. Doctors who know nutrition are actually pretty rare because um, it's not taught in the whole med school conventional system. Carbonated beverages, the phosphoric acid uh, can also cause problems for you. Titanium dioxide is a whole other story, but I would avoid it. Uh, some of these other chemicals, these are all things that can be potentially toxic to your gut wall. Um, having a C-section at birth. Normally when the baby passes through the vagina at delivery, they take on all these bacteria that help form the initial uh, bacteria flora of their gut. And that's good for them. So it's they're, they're not as well off, if you will, a C-section baby, uh, but they can still do fine. I was a C-section baby. Um, excessive bile acids from a high fat diet. We, we kind of covered that. And the, the bile acids in a meat-based diet are different. It's more of the taurine conjugated ones. And those are more uh, prone to becoming, ending up getting converted into hydrogen sulfide, excessive industrial fructose, some of these iron pills can end up being toxic to the gut wall. Um, okay, so here's some leaky gut controversies. Let's say a woman has a vag, normally vaginal delivery is better gut bacteria, like I said, for the baby. If she has a C-section delivery, I said, should she put her finger in her vagina and give the, and then the baby's mouth to transfer bacteria? It's edible, not edible. Maybe. Logically, that would make sense, even though it kind of shocks us to hear it. Alessio Fasano, the guy I was talking about, the leaky gut expert, real famous guy, he says, you're only born once, but you eat three times a day. So basically, you get your fiber, you'll catch up and you'll form the good bacteria. Another big hot topic in leaky gut literature is fecal transplant. And a lot of these fecal transplants are performed. So I'm wondering, let's say, for example, a wife has leaky gut. Should she kiss her husband's butt? Should she take SHIT from him? Perhaps, I don't know. Um, oral sex, is, I think is overrated. You worry about HPV, nasopharyngeal HPV. Just eat your fiber and you'll get good bacteria in your gut. Um, let's see, test for leaky gut. I don't want to get into all this stuff. Because a lot of times I would think the thing you want to do, let's say you think you might have leaky gut. I would say, fix your diet and see if you get better. And if you don't get better, then start worrying about all this fancy testing. I mean, if you're really sick, go to a doctor. If you're anemic, you're tired, you're fatigued, you got all those problems, go to a doctor and get your help. But what I'm also saying is a lot of times I see people rushing to get a CAT scan, get endoscopy, get all these fancy, expensive medical tests when it's sort of like, why don't you just fix what's the problem, probably the problem first. And I'm always amazed, you know, it's almost like patients love going to the hospital. Now, some people say, well, no, I don't love going to the hospital. I go to the hospital because I have to. No, they go to the hospital because they assume that there's nothing that they can do to help themselves. Okay. And it's almost like a pilgrimage. I've, I've seen it. I worked in tons of different hospitals. There's always this giant, like a river flows into each hospital every morning, all these people, all these tests. 
And most of them, you know, they don't know anything about health. Uh, they're still fat and sick uh, years later. So what I'm trying to say is, for example, here's the latest on depression. I was just reading this book um, about a cell by Suresh Mukherjee, Jesus, bright guy from Harvard. And uh, anyways, they're talking about the latest treatment for depression is deep brain stimulation. They're putting metal electrodes into a person's brain and then stimulating them, stimulating them with a battery pack like a pacemaker. And what I'm saying is, if you're feeling a little depressed, you know, talk to your friend first. Okay, don't be wrong. You know, depression is a specialty. You can go, you know, immediately get the medical attention if you think you're all your life's danger, all that stuff. Fine. Okay, but what I'm trying to say is they get a drug and typically the anti-depression uh, drugs don't work that well with a lot of side effects chronically. And if that doesn't work, they'll often get um, electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock, which shocks your brain with an electric current until you have a seizure. And... Then if that doesn't work, you'll potentially get this new experimental treatment, deep brain stimulation with electric wires planted into your brain. So what I'm saying is it could be dangerous to go to a doctor, go when you need to, but don't just think you go there for everything. Okay. Cause it could be dangerous. Okay. And there's tons of data showing that diet has a tremendous effect on mood, but there's also of course things, you know, social relationships, personal philosophy, and sometimes people really are sick and none of this stuff will work, but it's good to try that first. In the long run, that often is very helpful. Uh, so anyways, I'm just that was kind of the point I'm making. People rush to expensive, complex, invasive procedures, often painful, often with complications, right from the get-go. And they always want this most expensive new test. For example, lots of people in abdominal problems, they go and get scoped right away. And, you know, well, one thing too, I was gonna say, oh, this reminded me of Rip Van Winkle. He's a guy who slept by a tree for 20 years and he wake up and he thought the world had gone crazy. And I sometimes feel that way when I think about the world I grew up in and the world it is now, uh, it does seem like a lot of things are crazy. Being depressed and going to the doctor and getting metal electric wires put into your brain to treat depression, that sounds crazy to me. Um, compared to if you haven't tried all the other options first. And I'll bet you they tried the pills and electroshock first, but I'll bet you they have not tried uh, the diet type changes and the uh, avoiding toxins. Okay, so so this is what I'm trying to say is there is a place for pharmaceuticals. They're fantastically helpful to replace things that are missing. When you replace, for example, uh, dopamine with L-dopa in a person with Parkinson's, they get dramatically improved function. A hypothyroid patient, they'll get dramatically improved function with levothyroxine, for example. But there's also a lot of drugs that sort of barely got through approval and they're super profitable. And, you know, the poor patient and their family think, oh, you know, thank God for science. Oh, this is going to help us so much. And it's really like the emperor's new clothes. The drugs don't work. Okay. And they don't cure stuff in the, in the context of chronic disease, like we talked about before. So I'm just saying is each individual patient should study their disease. You can learn a lot more about your disease. You'd be amazed quite often than so-called experts who haven't studied it from the point of view of wanting to be cured. Okay. Rather than just managed. Um, and then also you go right for endoscopy. You're going to get a two- you know, from below, lower endoscopy, a tube from above, upper endoscopy, they're going to look through the scope. They can't see mild leaky gut. They can see big ulcerations. But what I'm saying is, all you got to do is sit at home and fix your diet. Why go through all that if you don't have to? Um, for this, Dr. McDougall has tons of testimonial patients at his site that have been cured of autoimmune diseases by fixing their diet. Okay. Especially diet, lifestyle health too, but diets especially. There was hardly any of these autoimmune diseases in plant-based communities like rural Africa in the old days. For example, Roy Swank in 1960, around 1960, he went to China. They couldn't even find him a patient that really had MS, okay? That's how rare these things are when people eat these healthy, low-fat, plant-based diets. You can try elimination diets and gradually, especially avoid the meat, the dairy, the oil. You know, maybe you have to avoid gluten and there's some other things that often cause food allergies, potentially emotional upset. 
Um, we talked about getting your fiber to build yourself up. Okay. Uh, also, I talked a little bit about aluminum. Aluminum is a bigger problem than people realize. It is toxic to the gut wall. It kills the gut lining cells, the absorptive cells, the enterocytes. It opens up tight junctions, causes increased reactive oxygen species, increased inflammation, um, abnormal immune function. Um, so the patients that are exposed to more of it in their water, you know, so that's why you want to filter your water because municipal water filtration, they actually put aluminum into the water because it's called a clarifier. Okay. Not such a great clarifier. The water might look clear, but the aluminum itself is toxic. Okay. Um, uh, promotes apoptosis, death of intestinal epithelial cells. Great. Destroys the structure of tight junctions. Oh, that's great. Okay. So aluminum is a bigger problem than is widely recognized. It also increases the risk of dementia. It can be damaging to the brain. It can accumulate in the brain. You can remove it, remove it with reverse osmosis filtration, distillation, ion exchange water filters, for example. Um, this is an article, the same paper here, showing how it's from the one from the previous page, showing how um, it's damaging the gut wall. They're showing little uh, infection abscesses building up at the bottom of the villi. They're little finger-like projections of uh, gut lining for absorption. Um, so that's, they're called cryptolibricum. So you get abscesses in there. Uh, you get other problems, blunting of the villi. You're going to have decreased absorptive space there with more aluminum exposure. Uh, aluminum is accumulates uh, in general, on average, patients with multiple sclerosis have 10 times increased aluminum concentration in their brain than non-multiple uh, sclerosis patients. Uh, these are some studies comparing autopsies of MS versus non-MS patients and their aluminum brain concentrations. Um, Aluminum also can be inhaled in fuel exhaust particles. And people are inhaling aluminum sometimes in the form of nanoparticles. You can figure out for yourself what this is a picture of and how that could lead to aluminum inhalation. It's not a healthy thing. So what can you do about it? Um, you can buy an extra air filter for your house. Um, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. I have to read more about them. I haven't studied air filters as much as I would like to. I, mean, I intend to do that in the future. We talked previously about excessive estrogenic chemicals can have sort of a paradoxical complex, complex effect on the immune system. They can both increase it in some ways, decrease it in other ways. And it goes back to having a baby. Having a baby is like having a transplant. So the body doesn't reject the new, you know, DNA biologic uh, little creature inside itself. So it can also have effect on the immune system. And you can get exposed to a lot of these as we talked about in previous lectures. Um, you know, the only thing that's been proven to really help so much for preventing coronary artery disease is these low-fat plant-based diets, okay? There's tons of data going back to Kempner, to McDougall, to Dr. Ornish, Dr. Esselstyn, Dr. Burke, and on and on, and Nathan Pritikin and others. You know, that's where it is. You know, and if you want it, that's where it is. Anybody can read all this stuff. I give you all these papers too. You can read them. You can look the stuff up. Okay, McDougall calls his diet about 7% fat. That's low fat. My so-called Spartan vegan diet's also about the same amount of fat. You know, Kempner's was in the ballpark of 5% fat or less. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Roy Swank. He's a neurologist who came out of Canada. He went to Oregon in about 1954. He was a mentor to Dr. John McDougall. The guy lived about 100 years, uh, 99 years, 1909 to 2008. And he did the research on multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disease. And he had patients that if he started them on what he called the Swank diet, very low in saturated fat. At 34 years, about 95% of them were still uh, with intact activities of daily living. It gets a little confusing looking at his data because if he started them on the diet later, they didn't get as much benefit out of it. So it's important that a patient with MS gets started you know, as early as possible on the diet. In comparison, if you don't have the low saturated fat diet, 
you know, within 10 years, lots of them are wheelchair bound, bed bound or ridden. And like I said, you know, here's that lady that Jacqueline Dupre, you know, that wonderful, wealthy, great musician lady. And she was dead real fast from MS. So what I'm saying is conventional treatments are over. And MS is, you know, it's common enough. I see it every day. Um, so how does Swank kind of figure this stuff out? Swank looked at the uh, epidemiological data, nutrition data from World War II. And he saw in Norway, for example, that where food was rationed from, and people were forced to eat plant foods instead of animal foods, they were actually a lot healthier. So despite all the stress, psychological stress of the situation, the diet was more important. It's more important than psychological stress. And that's been shown with other places that underwent rationing um, where they were denied meat and oils. Okay. And then he also looked at the center of Norway had a different uh, amount of MS than did the coastal areas. In the center of Norway, they had a lot of dairy farms and people ate a lot of dairy and they had lots of multiple sclerosis and is often very severe. In the coastal areas, they had much more plant foods in their diet. They also ate more fish and they had much less MS and it was less severe. So what's the point? That's highly relevant because it shows you a dietary correlation with MS, but also it shows you a latitude correlation, meaning that the latitude of the patients in Norway that had MS or didn't MS wasn't that different. So this is really strong because other people say, well, GMS is a lot more common in Northern countries like Canada than it is in a tropical country, let's say like Mexico or something. And the reason is, People say, well, is that because of the sunshine, the vitamin D? And what Dr. Swank is basically saying is he doesn't think it's because of the sunshine. He says it's because of the diet, because in Norway, it didn't really matter what latitude they were at relative to each other. It mattered what diet they ate. And the number one risk factor for multiple sclerosis is a high intake of saturated fat, especially from dairy. There's an additional reason why dairy is especially bad for increasing risk of multiple sclerosis. Oh, Swank followed these patients for as long as 50 years. And he said, even a tiny amount of saturated fat, just like eight grams a day, causes a dramatically worse outcomes. Um, Swank did allow some oils into his diet, but I think that was a mistake. He felt that got patients to be more compliant with the diet. There's a lot of reasons why we'll say that. And McDougal himself, who later took over um, taking care of some of Dr. Swank's patients, strongly agrees with that. He's got a bunch of videos online, Dr. McDougal, about his conversations with Dr. Swank. And some of them are short, like around six minutes. Other ones are really long, like an hour long. They're worth watching. Okay. This guy Swank was a genius. I mean, he figured out how to cure, uh, basically how to get the best results in the world, not necessarily cure, but get the best results in the world for MS patients. Um, that's extraordinary. Okay. I, he didn't know as much as we do now about nutrition. Okay. McDougal diet. Um, let's see. Decreases the risk of all these other diseases too. So you, you improve your overall health. Cause that's one thing I saw. I looked at Swank's data and he had patients dying from myocardial infarction and cancer and stuff. And what I'm saying is I think that if they had reduced their intake of the dietary oils, in particular, like omega-6s, I think his patients would have been healthier. Um, best theory of MS causation. This is a call. I would call this the Swank McDougal five-step hypothesis. The patient gets a leaky gut and then they get, uh, some animal proteins across the gut wall, especially the dairy proteins. I say that because the casein and another dairy protein called buterophilin are thought to, in particular, be the ones likely that are cross-reacting. Having antibodies that cross-react, they get into the brain and they damage the myelin. Myelin is like the insulator coating of a nerve, like the insulation plastic around an electrical wire. That's like what myelin is, myelin is to a nerve. It conducts electricity. That's what a nerve does. And myelin um, is destroyed in multiple sclerosis. Okay, that's going to raise another question. Well, you have an autoantibody, fine, just same as most of the other autoimmune diseases. Well, how does that autoantibody get into the brain? Well, you have to have something called blood-brain barrier damage so that antibody can get across the blood-brain barrier. 
And what Dr. Swank came to the conclusion after doing a lot of experiments on blood vessels and high fat diets, he came to the conclusion that the sat fat was causing the red blood cells to clump together and lead to hypoxia of the blood brain barrier lining. And that would cause its breakdown through which the amino, the uh, antibodies could cross it then. Okay. Okay. And we're going to talk in more detail about that. You know, we've talked about Rouleau formation with LDL cholesterol, overcoming the zeta potential. I'll show you pictures. It'll make more sense in a moment. We're also going to talk about acanthocytes. Acantho means thorn. These are uh, misshapen, deformed red blood cells. High fat diet will do that to them. I'll explain to you why in just a moment. This is a little mnemonic though. Acantho means thorn, uh, A for asymmetric, and then E for echinocytes. Echino means like hedgehog. And that means the spurs are equally distributed all around. E for equal distribution. That's how you can just differentiate which is which. Not that it really matters, but just so you get the idea, it messes up the red blood cells. You need good red blood cells to deliver oxygen. Um, psychological stress is bad for MS patients. Psychological stress creates almost like an acute inflammatory response. You get increased fibrinogen, the clotting protein from the blood. So you're predisposed to clot. That's bad. As well as these other factors here and activated platelets that all predispose to clotting. And these activated platelets increase the risk of metastatic cancer too. That's for another reason. All right. But anyways, all these problems here cause some breakdown of the blood-brain barrier. And now the antibodies can get across an MS and damage the brain. Um, Swank points out it's real important they start the diet as soon as possible because once their disability occurs from MS, they might not be able to reverse it. Uh, like I said, he couldn't find any MS patients for certain in around 1960 in China, despite you know their billion population. Um, Swank studying the history of the disease felt that you couldn't prove it definitely existed before the modern world with all these high fat diets. You know, if it did, it was extremely rare. Like I said, just eight grams sat fat per day, triple the risk of dying from MS. He said that the vast majority of patients respond well. In his opinion, it's in the ballpark of one out of 400, depending on the data you look at. Some will say one out of 200, one out of 500, but in that ballpark, if you average it out. Um, let's see. Uh, talked about identical twins, only about 20% get MS, which is proof that it's, you know, there's a genetic component, but it's not that big. It's primarily a lifestyle one. And that lady, Stari Sanchik, you know, she wrote a good book called What's Missing in Medicine. And she talks about her own personal experience with MS. And that really had a strong influence on her too. You know, you look at the identical twin studies, they would all get it if it was genetic. They're identical twins, but they don't. So lifestyle is the major contributing uh, causation factor here. Um, Dr. McDougall points out, you know, based on the, like, the previous experience of Peter Quo, the cardiologist out of Pennsylvania, Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman, typically high fat diet will reduce oxygen delivery in the ballpark of about 20%, which doesn't matter if you're on the flat part of the hemoglobin oxygen dissociation curve, but it does matter if you're already compromised for oxygen delivery. Um, we're going to talk, Dr. Swank actually tested it in uh, hamsters. And there were sometimes in the brain tissue of a hamster, there was a 30% reduction in oxygen delivery after a high fat meal. Uh, MS drugs, really expensive, 70,000 per year about. Oh, one thing I thought was funny, Stari Sanstanchik, she talked about, she said that a medical residency teaches a doctor bad habits. I thought that was funny. She says during residency, let's say an internal medicine resident, they're sleep deprived. That's not a good health habit. They often are eating a lousy diet. That's not good. They're stressed out <laughs> and they don't exercise much. I thought that was funny. Because uh, a big part I've come to the conclusion after all these years in medicine, I've been a doctor for 30 years. The conclusion I've come to now is that when you learn how to take care of yourself, how to optimize the health of yourself, your friends and family, that knowledge benefits your patients. Uh, so learning yourself how to become a low-fat vegan, learning yourself how to get your best sleep, your best exercise, and all this other stuff, it helps. Okay, these are some other things we talked about. 
Okay, distribution of MS. We talked about the Norway data and Schwank. Um, oh, wait, here's here's the paper on cross-reactivity. So the protein in the brain myelin is called myelogen oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, often abbreviated MOG. And here's the milk protein, buterophilin. And antibodies that'll bind one will bind the other. So that's called uh, molecular mimicry and autoantibody cross-reactivity. Cross-reactivity means it reacts to one, it reacts to the other. And that's thought to be one of the mechanisms by which these antibodies to this milk protein, buterophilin, that got across the gut wall, then get across the blood-brain barrier and damage the brain tissue. Here's a typical brain MRI in a multiple sclerosis patient. These are called the cerebral ventricles, where the cerebral spinal fluid is located. And you'll often get these periventricular lesions. The ones that are relatively perpendicular to the ventricular wall are called Dawson's fingers. That's a very characteristic appearance of multiple sclerosis on a brain MRI. This sequence, by the way, is a flare sequence, which is a T2-weighted sequence with fat suppression so that the CSF is all low signal. It's dark. Um, this is just the cerebral cortex. Cortex in Latin means bark like the bark of a tree. So the cortex is where all the neuron cell bodies are all along the periphery of the brain. And this is the white matter where the association fibers are, where the neurons are that then are projected outward to other parts of the body and the brain, for example. So this is a typical brain looking at the flare sequence. When I look at the new one and the old one, we call it a flare to flare compare. And that's how you look at a brain MRI for multiple sclerosis. You see if they've gotten new lesions, you see if any of the lesions are really acute, they're enhancing, taking up um, intravenous injected contrast, the gadolinium. Okay, so antibody cross-reactivity also has been seen to occur between casein, another milk protein, and myelin-associated glycoprotein. And then it'll damage that myelin in the brain, cause demyelination. So that's your classic multiple sclerosis. How does MS get into the brain? It has to disrupt that blood-brain barrier so those autoantibodies can cross that blood-brain barrier. This, by the way, is Swank's book. It's a good book. It's an old book, but it's good. Um, it's really easy to read. It's And the, I thought the best part of it was all the stuff about his research on blood flow. Um, and of course, the great outcomes he had with his patients. This is the paper where Swank had uh, 34 years follow-up on 150 patients. And the ones who started earlier um, had incredibly uh, good function. ADLs are activity of daily living. Um, like I said, greatest benefit was in those with minimal disability at the start of the trial. 95% survived and remained physically active. They still could carry out their activities of daily living. Okay, That's the co-author of the book is Dugan down here. You can see it as well. Okay, the more uh, sad fat people eat, the more MS they get. Also, you know, just for their overall health, the the worse their health is too. So they, they go together. So you not only help prevent MS, you also make yourself healthier in general. Um, Swank wrote a whole bunch of papers about his analysis of blood flow and high fat meals. Uh, the high fat food makes the blood thick. And like I said, it can cause injury to the blood brain barrier. The exact mechanism he believes from his research, it's hypoxia. Um, certainly that seems to be correct and that there's more than that though as well. Um, this is one chart of chylomicrons. Chylomicrons are the initial particles. Here it is, chylomicron counts of fat absorption from the gut. And they'll start going up, you know, at two hours, pretty significant after a high fat meal. And they're going to peak at about five hours. And especially this is like a sat fat meal. Swank typically fed his patients butter, fat, cream, milk-like stuff in his experiments. And you're going to, you can accumulate a lot of fat in the blood pretty fast. And then usually that starts tapering off by about eight hours or so. Um, here is, this is a picture of a test tube of your blood. And this is a normal person's blood right here. You got the red blood cells um, sediment at the bottom, and that's your hematocrit. And typically they're about 44% of the contents. Then you get what's called the, the white blood cells or the buffy coat. And that's a real small, less than 1%. And then you've got the plasma, which normally is transparent. You could look right through it and see stuff on the other side. But after eating a high fat meal, 
all the fat accumulates in the plasma and it makes the plasma opaque. There's a really good movie called Game Changers about, you know, vegan diet. And they show um, there were a couple of pro football athletes and they had their blood drawn and they had a picture of it. And you can see how thick it is and it becomes opaque. And so that's what your blood's like after a high fat meal. And we are not designed for that. Oh, my slides didn't really come out too well on this one. I was showing Rouleau formation whereby these are red blood cells and these are the bridging molecules, molecules that stick them together and stack them up. Okay. So the stack of coins, the word is Rouleau from the French. Okay. Um, yeah, these slides didn't, just, some of my slides are not uh, displaying as well as I like. But anyways, these are simple stuff. And I showed them plenty of times in my old talks. The higher your LDL cholesterol, the thicker your blood becomes, it means the higher its blood viscosity. This actually is an important slide right here. This is a red blood cell and surrounding its outer surfaces are negative charges. The human body runs largely on electrical charges. This is not widely known. Most doctors, they don't know this. I talk to medical, medical students all the time. Never in my life have I ever had a single doctor or medical student ever know what a zeta potential is. It's been known for a long time, the charge around red blood cells, because you have to store blood. And so they have to deal with this uh, zeta potential when they store blood. So it's known for a long time, but it's not in the medical textbooks. All right. So the point is both red blood cells have negative charges around them. So like the, like a negatively charged battery. So they oppose each other. They repel each other. They do not stick together. That's what you want. Now here's the problem. A bridging molecule is something with a positive charge on it and big enough in size that it forms a significant contact between two red blood cells. It'll stick them together. LDL cholesterol is big enough in size with a positive charge. It sticks RBCs together. And that's what makes them stick together in a rouleau formation, like a stack of coins, okay? IgM antibodies, positively charged, big enough, sticks them together. It's a, these are bridging molecules. Fibrinogen, the clotting program, it's a bridging molecule. Uric acid, which is increased if you eat really large amounts of bolus uh, fructose and like a sweetened beverage, that can also have this effect. Okay, and then here's the one thing. I didn't have it written down in here, but something called MPO, myeloperoxidase. MPO, myeloperoxidase is also a bridging molecule and it is markedly positively charged and it'll stick red blood cells together. It, it does a few other things too. And by the way, we talked about a red blood cell having a zeta potential negative charge. It's due to sialic acids. Think of that as being like a glucose with a carboxylic acid added to it. It's a little more than that, but that's close enough to give the idea of how you put a negative charge on it. And the neutrophils, sometimes called PNMs, you know, polymorphonuclear leukocytes, they will also have a negative charge around them. So zeta potential is something that white blood cells have and red blood cells have. And guess what? The endothelial lining also has a zeta potential. It's actually a very important concept. Okay, this, this slide's better. Here we can see a red blood cell and we can see the bridging molecule. And like I said, this could be LDL cholesterol. This could be IgM antibody. This could be uric acid. This could be myeloperoxidase, you know, released by the, the white blood cells in the setting of inflammation or the setting of a high fat meal. So once typical red blood cells, about seven microns in diameter, typical capillary is about five microns in diameter. So what that means is in order for a red blood cell to pass through the capillary, it has to deform itself, bend back on itself a little bit. When it's stuck to these bridging molecules, it's less deformable. It's harder to push it through. So blood pressure has to go up. So as soon as you start having high fat meals or having these bridging molecules involved, you're going to get increased blood pressure. Um, normally blood pressure, you can look at your hand, the two fingers in the middle, if you put your hand sideways, so you're looking at your palm, the two fingers in the middle would be like your red blood cells. It's called laminar blood flow. And then your white blood cells are adjacent to that. And then your plasma flows right next to the lining, the endothelial cells. Okay, that's normal laminar flow. That's what you want it to be. 
when you get higher and higher blood pressure, you're going to come to bifurcation points. Like let's say here is the common carotid artery going up to your brain. Here's the internal carotid that actually enters your skull and really is the main uh, blood supply to your brain. Here's the external carotid. The point I'm making is there's a median divider at this bifurcation branch point. And the higher the pressure when it hits this branch point, the more it's going to bounce around the blood flow and be distorted, no longer laminar. And there's going to be retrograde eddy currents that come along the far wall. And they will then um, sediment. And the point is this turbulent flow and retrograde eddy currents, they can they confuse the mechanoreceptors on the uh, arterial lining cells here, the endothelial cells. And they'll start to express prothrombotic molecules. They'll shed their glycocalyx to some extent. And it's also because of myeloperoxide. We're going to come to that in a moment, why this is happening. So people will form clots there. And, and you know, by the way, one of the main things that I do is I'm a neuroradiologist. I had actually originally trained to be an endovascular neurointerventionalist at one time, but I am a neuroradiologist. I look at tons of CT angiograms. I've seen many, many hundreds and hundreds of catheter angiograms, MRA angiograms to the brain. This is almost always where the clot forms. There's special situations with tortuosity where it won't form here, but atherosclerosis is primarily a blood clot. You need to know that. I studied it for many, many years. Okay. I did a fellowship at Harvard in imaging guided surgery and interventional radiology with emphasis on vascular disease. I've been interested in this for a long time. Once you understand atherosclerosis is a blood clot, you'll be able to make sense out of tons of things. Yes, cholesterol is involved because the main thing that makes these clots form is high cholesterol. The LDL molecules stick in the red blood cells together but know that it is a blood clot. I look at it on a CTA. You can look at it. Anybody can just look at a CTA. You'll see it looks like a blood clot. Okay, it's it's clot density. All right, here's the endothelial cells, meaning the lining cells of the arteries. And they also have a zeta potential. It's produced by their antithrombin-3 and their heparin sulfate, which has a negative charge on it. A lot of negative charges on a heparin sulfate molecule. So all these negative charges, everything is repelling each other as it should. You don't want your red blood cells sticking to the, the arterial lining. You don't want your white blood cells sticking to the arterial lining. In addition, the endothelial cells release nitric oxide. And the nitric oxide is a vasodilator, and it also prevents the platelets from clotting. And that's like about the most important thing you could know. I went to the um, Dr. Esselstyn course where he teaches the patients, you know, an all-day-long course. And he kept on going over how important it was to protect nitric oxide for the arteries, you know. And so... I kind of asked a couple questions. I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? And he goes, we'll get to that later. We'll get to that later. And then at lunch, he came over and he talked to me. He goes, he goes, Pete, I know you mean well, and you're just in all these mechanistic details. But he said, you know what? I got a lot of experience teaching these patients. And the thing that really matters is they have to understand that they protect their arterial wall and they maintain their nitric oxide by eating this low-fat plant diet. And he says, all these other details, if you overwhelm them with details, you just confuse them. He says, if they get nitric oxide, they'll follow the diet and they'll have a great outcome. So he's right. Okay. So obviously I go into more details. I'm interested in more of the details. You got more of a highly motivated crowd that hears these lectures and it's good to know both, but I'm just letting you know, if you only knew nitric oxide, the Esselstyn's got the best results of any doctor in the world. Okay. The nitric oxide after it's released from endothelial cell, it goes into the arterial lumen and prevents clotting of the platelets, but it also goes deeper into the arterial wall and causes dilation of the smooth muscle cells. Okay. Uh, dietary sodium inhibits the production of nitric oxide. So it causes vasoconstriction, meaning that these smooth muscle cells do not relax. Okay. Um, a high sodium diet also leads to a, accumulation of calcium in these smooth muscle cells. That's a separate topic. I've talked about that in my hypertension lecture, and that also causes vasoconstriction. And when these arteries are contracted, meaning tighter, smaller diameter lumen, you get more hypertension and all the problems that go with it. But I think that the key point of this slide, I think is the nitric oxide we talked about, and also being aware of the concept of a zeta potential negative charge on the surface of the endothelium. That's going to become highly relevant in a moment. 
Um, cold weather increases your risk of clotting, having a myocardial infarction. That's been shown. Um, severely stressful events. Caffeine is a small increase in risk, but there is it's there. Um, so I'm going to show you a cool paper here. Uh, Fuchs is the main author on this paper about the effect of a single high-fat meal on the arterial lining, the endothelium. So the, the arterial lining is called the endothelium. Uh, Flow-mediated dilation means like you put a tourniquet up on the arm, then you release the tourniquet. And because the distal part of the arm below the tourniquet didn't get as much blood supply as it, as it wanted to and its venous return was impaired, it now is sort of starved for oxygen and it'll vasodilate. So this is the key thing of a normal healthy artery here. Baseline, and then after the tourniquet's released, massive dilation to increase blood flow. That increase in blood flow provides a rapid restoration of oxygen in all the cells supplied by that artery. When the patient, this is a healthy person here, this is a healthy participant, I circled it all in green, the healthy person. When they're fed a high fat meal, they're not able to vasodilate that much. So they're less able to maintain adequate blood flow to the tissues and the muscle in that area. Okay, now it gets even worse. Let's say it's a patient, they said patients who had, um, you know, like two or more cardiovascular risk factors. These patients are at increased risk for a heart attack. And here's why. First of all, when you do, you check them when they're in a fasting phase, uh, they only get a, a little bit of vasodilation. They cannot vasodilate maximally. All right. We saw how fat has effects that stick around for a long time, many hours. And if you're eating two or three high fat meals every day, you're always going to have poor blood flow, you know, all around the clock, 24 seven. All right. So now what's interesting here is that, um, and this person who's at risk with more baseline atherosclerosis, you feed them a high fat meal. They really cannot vasodilate. And do you understand the danger here? Here is normal in the setting of increased oxygen demand a massive ability to increase blood flow. Here's this patient. They can barely increase their blood flow when they go from um, a high fat meal, all right? And so why does this matter? Well, this is how you, you give somebody a heart attack. Let's say they're out in cold weather and they have to do some physical exertion, shovel the snow or something, and they're doing other stupid stuff like having a high salt meal and they're smoking a cigarette and they're drinking you know, caffeine. They're maximizing their muscle activity but they cannot deliver the goods. They can't deliver the blood flow, the oxygen. That heart muscle could die. That's a heart attack. Okay, and so um, I wrote this here. How do you cause a heart attack? Well, you decrease the blood flow. You decrease the blood flow because of the high fat meal. You decrease it because of sodium, like we showed here. They cannot significantly increase their blood flow to the tissue, all right? And, you know, cold weather can do it. Psychological stress can do it. Stress equivalents. Um, caffeine's a stress equivalent and it's simultaneously, it's worse than a stress equivalent too. It, it's what I mean by that. It's worse than just decreasing blood supply. It also, um, increases metabolic demand. So if you ramp up metabolic demand, um, uh, due to psychological stress, caffeine, physical exertion in this context, uh, sleep deprivation is a stress equivalent. You see how the muscle is screwed. So the muscle is surrounding this artery. And so what I'm saying is when there's baseline atherosclerosis, and there's things that are preventing vasodilation here, like the sodium and the high fat. They really can't ramp up their blood flow much in comparison with a normal person eating a carbohydrate, low-fat diet. So they're much higher risk of having a heart attack. Good to understand that. That's how it works. Oh, this slide got a little messed up. It's not displaying correctly. But the point I wanted to make was this was the a cross-section detail of what's in a atherosclerotic plaque. You can still get a little idea of it. The F was for fiber. I'm not sorry, for fibrous tissue, like, you know, collagen scar. You can't reabsorb that, especially not when it's acellular. Um, when it's 
still cellular. You can resorb a little bit of it. But here are the fat particles. That's sort of called the lipid core. And this is necrotic material, necrotic core. This could all be reabsorbed. So plaques can shrink a lot. The orange was for calcium. Calcium cannot be reabsorbed. So the point I'm making is you can shrink an atherosclerotic plaque by resorbing the parts of it that are still metabolically active, but not the parts that are not metabolically active. But you will also restore the endothelial function to reduce nitric oxide. So you can get dramatic improvements and reduction in chest pain. You know, Dr. Esselstyn would routinely see patients have symptomatic reductions of their cardiac chest pain angina within a week, okay? Because of restoration of nitric oxide. You get all that fat out of the arterial system and those nitric oxide uh, enzymes in the endothelial lining, typically called ENOS, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, will start working again and you'll get vasodilation. And then you're also gonna clean up some other vessels. I'll show you something really cool about that. Um, well, first of all, we'll look at these peak curves. There was a guy by the name of Peter Kuo, He's a cardiologist in Pennsylvania in the 1950s. And he had a bunch of cardiac patients that would get angina, uh, meaning chest pain due to uh, heart disease, atherosclerosis, blockage of the arteries in the heart. And he would check their blood lipids every 30 minutes. When he had peak fat in the blood, peak lipemia, which he confirmed with the blood draws, they got peak chest pain, the most chest pain. This is back in the days when there was no IRB and, you know, in institutional review board to, to prevent them from doing these experiments. I think that's kind of funny. He's doing these experiments on patients when they had no cardiac calf suite. They weren't even doing cabbages in those days, coronary artery bypass crap. But anyways, um, here's what's interesting too. So here's, here's saturated fat first. So here's the black line of saturated fat. Peak lipemia in the blood was about five hours and that was also peak angina. And other experimenters, by the way, took on this work. So Quo was in the 1950s, a little bit in the 1960s. Then there was another team of researchers named Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman and they were ophthalmologists. They were sort of famous for talking about type A personalities in association with atherosclerosis, high stress types. But they also did really cool experiments where they put a microscope, 80-fold uh, magnification over the eye in humans. And they could see blood vessels occluding um, around peak lipemia. So the interesting thing about the unsaturated fat, there was a movement after Ansel Keys figured out sat fat was a major cardiovascular risk factor in the 1950s, there was a big movement in the 1960s to give people all these cooking oils, polyunsaturated fatty acid, omega-6 oils. And what they found out was that with the omega-6 fats, the patients would have prolonged sludging of the blood. And so it turns out you can sludge the blood for multiple reasons. You can sludge it initially from all the chylomicrons. You can sludge it as the LDL cholesterol becomes available. And you can sludge it when you've got lots of PUFAs on board. Uh, in the setting of these omega-6 fats, okay? When you eat a carbohydrate meal, that's the green line down here, you don't get all this blood fat. And the problem with uh, their experiment, Ray Rosenman and uh, Meyer Friedman was, they would start these patients in the morning, let's say at nine o'clock, and they would still have blood sludge, you know, nine hours later, you know, the research workers wanted to go home. That made it difficult to research it. So imagine the person's eating that twice a day. They never have good blood flow. Okay, just briefly about fats, Here's a saturated fat. So saturated means it's all saturated with hydrogens. There's no double bonds. Um, a typical fatty acid, they're all like this. You have a carboxylic acid at one end. So that's the carboxylic acid end. And then the rest is just carbons and hydrogens. So that's the hydrophobic tail because carbon and hydrogen have about the same electronegativity, meaning that they both hang on to electrons about with equal electrical force. So they're not polar. There's no charge on that part of the molecule versus in solution, this will often be deprotonated, meaning the hydrogen moves away, the oxygen just sitting there with a negative charge on it. Charged things tend to dissolve in water, so it's hydrophilic. Hydro meaning water, philic meaning to love, so dissolving in water. Okay, and then a molecule like this with features of both a hydrophilic component, polar charged, versus nonpolar, uncharged, they're amphiphilic, like an amphibian that can live on both land and water, meaning they can be soluble in both an aqueous solution 
and in a fatty oily solution, okay? Emulsifiers and detergents and soaps are all similar to that. That's an important concept, that amphiphilic concept. So again, here's a sat fat, no double bonds. Here's a MUFA like olive oil, the main ingredient of olive oil, olive oil oleic acid with one double bond. MUFA means monounsaturated fat. So that's called an unsaturation. Here's a PUFA, polyunsaturated fat. There's two double bonds. The carbon in between the double bonds is called the methylene bridge carbon. So a carbon with two hydrogens on it, it's a methylene group. And that's going to be relevant because that hydrogen, it, the, the carbons are pulling more hard on the electrons here. That hydrogen is vulnerable being plucked off. And when that happens, you can get what's called lipid peroxidation reaction. So we're going to come back to that. But you need to know that about PUFAs, um, especially omega-6 PUFAs. All right, so here is a uh, lipid peroxidation reaction. So here's an omega-6 PUFA. It's called omega-6 because starting from the omega end over here, you count the carbons, one, two, three, four, five, six. So that's carbon number six. There's a double bond. So that's an omega-6 PUFA, polyunsaturated fatty acid. And it's a PUFA because there's more than one double bond. This is the methylene bridge carbon. It gets plucked off. That's called a free radical when you have an unpaired electron in the outer orbital. And then oxygen will react with that. When you got two oxygens next to each other reacting with it, that's called a peroxyl. That's why it's called lipid, lipid meaning fat, peroxidation, meaning to add two oxygens next to each other. This is also a free radical, and this can undergo a chain reaction and damage cell membranes, and it can destroy cell membranes, all right? So this is one of the reasons why um, these omega-6 cooking oils are really bad for your health. And the Japanese scientist uh, Tetsumori Yamashima uh, did a lot of research on this. Uh, we're not going to go into all the detail of this. I talked about this in my other lectures, but just so you know, this can damage brain cells, especially in people who like the ones who get the alcohol flushing syndrome amongst Asians that lack acetaldehyde dehydrogenase enzyme, but it can happen to a lesser extent than other persons. And there's other problems that happen. You're still going to be making some of this HNE, hydroxynonanol. It's a toxic aldehyde from omega-6 cooking oils. It can cause damage to the hypothalamus hunger center. And this guy, Tetsumori Yamashima, thinks that's partly why fat people, the more longer they're fat, the more... Uh, unable they are to uh, ever motivate themselves to come out of it. It also damages the pancreatic beta cells. It damages the hippocampal cells too, the memory cells and causes cognitive impairment. There are multiple reasons why diabetics and people who eat these oils become cognitively impaired. And I'll tell you, cognitive impairment is so common. People don't even realize it. I have an internal medicine lady doctor friend. She told me that almost all of her patients over 60 are cognitively impaired. They're all quite mentally slow. She says it's very sad. Okay, it's way more common than people think. Um, I can tell you that's the most common reason I ever look at a brain, brain MRI, cognitive impairment, memory problems, dementia. That is a super common reason for getting brain MRIs. Okay, this is just showing that toxic aldehyde also inhibits mitochondrial function. Okay, now here's from the Swank paper. So Swank did a lot of interesting experiments. He was often looking at the, the blood vessels, small arteries in the cheek pouch of a hamster, but similar work has been done looking underneath the tongue in humans, looking in the eye in humans, like I told you with uh, Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman's work. They've also looked in the bellies in the abdomen. But anyways, what he saw was here would be uh, a normal artery. Let's see, up here. Here's a normal artery. See how these red blood cells are flowing in the vessel and they're not touching each other? That's the main point. They're not touching each other. Whereas once you start getting a high fat diet, these are all stuck together. See how these are stuck together like a stack of coins? And this artery, the flow is so fast, you can't even see them. Flow slows down with all the fat in the blood and the RBCs stick together. And here you can see they're forming these bulky clumps. Well, these bulky clumps, look at these bulky clumps of red blood cells here. They can occlude an artery. Okay, another thing too is it's good to see this movie right here. Um, you can see this at drmcdougall.com. It's called Blood Sludge, Blood Flow Before and After Eating a Fatty Meal. 
And you will see how the red blood cells are flowing just like this, independent of one another before the high fat meal. And then they're all sticking together. I, I recommend you see this. It's like one of the most memorable medical movies about physiology and pathophysiology you'll ever see in your life. And it just hits home. And that's why also you could, if you ever remember, go to a greasy spoon and eat a really greasy high fat meal and then feel sluggish afterwards. That's the reason why it impairs athletic performance. Okay. Here's a summary slide, word slide of um, high fat meal. And by the way, I throw in a couple word slides. Like if there's somebody who's a real aficionado, wants to get all the details, it's there. But, you know, when I'm giving a talk, I usually just hit on a couple high points. But a lot of bad things happen with high fat meal. Um, we talked about the increased chylomicrons accumulating, causing blood sludge, and that can lead to tissue hypoxia. Um, another thing happens, There's a we're going to show a picture of it. Phosphatidylserine is a phospholipid that normally is on the inner uh, leaflet of the red blood cell plasma membrane. It'll externalize, meaning move to the outer leaflet, and that makes the cells stiff. They can't deform as well, and that makes them causes high blood pressure, okay? It also makes them stickier and makes them more prone to clotting. Those are both bad. You want your red blood cells flexible. You don't want them sticky. You don't, you want them to be highly deformable, not stiff. Okay, LDL cholesterol, the bridging molecule, we talked about that. Triglycerides and free fatty acids are both elevated in the blood. Um, you get a drop in tissue oxygen delivery, tissue hypoxia. Um, like I said, routinely 15 to 20%, as McDougal described from the Quo and uh uh, Friedman uh, research papers and Swank's own research up to 30% in hamster brains uh, of a drop in uh, oxygen delivery to the tissues. Um, and that's what he thought was damaging the blood brain barrier, causing increased blood brain barrier permeability. Increased blood brain barrier permeability is a big deal because I'll show you pictures that make more sense of it, but it, it causes brain fog. You're not going to be able to concentrate as effectively if you have a disruption of your normal ionic balance along those cells. They run on ionic gradients. And if you mess up the ionic gradients, you're not going to be able to conduct uh, nerve impulses that well. Your red blood cells are changing. In fact, I'm going to show you pictures of all of this stuff. I'm just quickly giving you the vocabulary uh, to make sense of it faster. Flow-mediated dilation, how well the artery can dilate, like we just showed when you release a tourniquet. Dr. Vogel is like real famous for doing all kinds of experiments with this. Um, causes of leaky gut. Yeah, the high-fat diet is also causing leaky gut, which is going to throw all these inflammatory chemicals into your blood like LPS. LPS is a big one. It's real prothrombotic. Um, this increase in blood brain barrier, major cause of brain fog. A lot of people, you know, ask me, what can they do about brain fog? Well, this is a big one. Avoid the high fat diets. I mean, um, sodium is a vasoconstrictor, which also limits blood tissue perfusion. LPS gets in the blood. It causes a whole inflammatory cascade. And the big thing is it's prothrombotic. You don't want to be clotting stuff off. People mostly die from clotting. Okay. They don't die from bleeding. Hardly anybody dies from bleeding to death. Tons and tons and tons of people die from plugged up arteries, plugged up arteries, Cause tissue hypoxia, tissue hypoxia leads to cancer, tissue hypoxia leads to, excuse me, infarction, death from lack of oxygen. That's what heart attack is, lack of oxygen to the heart muscle, so it dies. And then you can't pump blood, you die. Okay, bacteria will get into the blood, they'll cause problems. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. If the person has high iron level, which happens as people get older, older they tend to have more free iron in the blood, that can lead to a whole series of reactions. We're going to talk about that. Um, excessive psychological stress contributions, high fat diet also makes them sick in a whole bunch of other ways. Hypertension, diabetes are the most common like pathways to everything else that kills people, heart attacks and stroke. Plus they mess up your spine. They make you go blind They give you back pain. It's all bad. All right. Myeloperoxidase is abbreviated MPO. And when a person eats a high fat meal, their neutrophils, white blood cells, uh, the PMNs are also called, they release 
a lot of this myelo peroxide into the blood and that's going to damage the red blood cells and the lining. I'll show you some pictures of that now. That ends up being a really big deal. So why do we even have MPO in the body, myeloperoxidase? Because it's used by neutrophils to kill bacteria. The MPO is an enzyme that'll help convert uh, you know, superoxide and, and hydrogen peroxide into hypochloric acid right here. And that hypochloric acid will kill bacteria. So that's its normal physiologic function. Um, it's really kind of like a lysosomal enzyme, okay? Or a phagosome, if you want to call it that. All right, so that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be there. But the body's confused by the high-fat meal. It causes a major inflammatory reaction. So the neutrophils, I got MPs for neutrophils. It release MPO into the blood. It's highly positively charged, meaning cationic. Okay, it binds the red blood cells. It'll distort their shape. We talked about that, the acanthocytes and the um, echinocytes. Um, then it'll bind to the endothelial cells. These little uh, blue lines here that are kind of squiggly, those are the endothelial cells, glycocalyx. Normally they project up high like this, but once you get these MPO, so these little red circles with a positive in the center of them, those are myeloperoxidase, positively charged. When they hit the glycocalyx, it'll collapse downward. You can see here's a close-up picture of it. The negative charges of the endothelial glycocalyx, like the heparin sulfates, which we referred to earlier as being the zeta potential of the endothelial cell lining, they stick to the positive charge of the MPO and they collapse inward. Well, once they collapse downward, well, guess what? They expose these adhesion molecules that will bind to the neutrophil, the white blood cell. They're called polymorphonucleosides because they have poly, multiple nuclei, and they're kind of variable in their um, appearance and shape. These will bind to this receptor on the endothelial cell and become activated. And they're even going to release additional enzymes, proteolytic enzymes like this one. Okay. And so that's going to cause further cleavage of the glycocalyx. So this is all bad. It's this endothelial glycocalyx, which prevents clots from happening. So if you pull down this glycocalyx and you tie up the heparin sulfates, you're going to have a hard time stopping red blood cells and, and platelets and whatnot from adhering to this endothelium and forming a clot. It's all bad. So the high fat meal causes all these problems. Okay. Um, endothelial collapses. Okay. We talked about that. Heparin, by the way, is the opposite. Heparin has a lot of negative charge on it. So heparin is very much like the arterial lining of the endothelial heparin sulfate with a lot of negative charges and it can break these things off. So that's why you often hear about heparin using experiments to disperse the myeloperoxide, also to disperse um, the effects of LDL cholesterol, to disperse the effects of saturated fat. Uh, Dr. Swank uh, refers to that in a lot of his experiments as well. Um, so this is just more of a close-up showing, you know, here's the baseline, all these negative charges making a zeta potential, sticking up high, way above the neutrophil receptor. So the they kind of stick up over an endothelial cell like trees on top of a mountain. And basically they're good. They're what should be there. And there's a big negative charge all over the top of the saying, stay away from me, red cells and white blood cells. Don't stick to me. I got a negative charge. I got a zeta potential. I'm healthy. Everything's normal. Leave me alone. Okay. But once these MPOs start dropping there, so the high fat meal causes the neutrophil to secrete the MPO. The MPO comes down to the endothelial cell glycocalyx. The positive charge causes its collapse, like it's shown here, the positive charge um, absorbing all these negative charges onto it. Now the neutrophilic receptor is exposed. So the neutrophil will bind this and then it'll start releasing inflammatory cytokines and it'll also release these enzymes like matrix metalloproteinases that will cleave some more of the glycocalyx. So you get a negative uh, positive feedback vicious cycle going. That's all bad. The high fat meal does that. That's why it's bad. Okay. Um, Let's see. Okay, well, yeah, here's just another thing. Neutrophils are known to be activated and degranulate, meaning release their MPO from their granules. 
by a high fat diet. There's, there's lots of articles on this. You'll see it. It's rather interesting stuff. Um, the other thing that happens is once, you know, normally you got a negative charge on the neutrophil right here. That's what this negative is. That's a zeta potential. You got a negative charge on endothelium. So they don't stick. They repel each other by these negative charges. It's just brilliant the way the, the human body is designed. It's, it's, it's so, it's awesome. It's fascinating. So anyway, you got this negative charge here. And when you, when you get inflammation in a sense from eating the high fat meal, this neutrophil will degranulate. It's got little granules in here and starts releasing these positively charged MPOs. And then they shut down the glycocalyx. And now, because you got those receptors now freed up in these other adhesion molecules, there's other ones involved in there too called selectin and there's, there's other things. The, the neutrophil will start rolling along the endothelium and sticking to it. And once it sticks to it, it can even go underneath the endothelium and cause more problems and inflammation. So the bottom line is a high fat diet causes markedly increased myeloperoxidized MPO in the blood. And you get all these secondary inflammatory problems, including the prothrombotic. Prothrombotic is bad. Anything that makes your blood clot unnecessarily, that's always bad. Okay, MPO made by this cation. We talked about all that. It also increases oxidative stress. I mean, it's part of its function is to increase oxidative stress. Okay, um, deforms the RBC shape. Okay, I showed you a picture before. I think I did of the aconocytes and the acanthocytes. Single high-fat meal provokes pathological erythrocyte remodeling. Oh, this is the article here. All right, so it's going to deform the shape. Um, they fed them a milkshake here, which is going to be primarily sat fat. And by the way, if you look at the cells in the blood, there's 700 red blood cells for every white blood cell. So there's tons more RBCs. That's why RBCs dominate whatever's going on in the blood. Um, and so here's the slide I, I meant to get to. We talked about acanthocyte. So a for, a for a asymmetric, meaning that the spurs are mostly on one side of it. They're not uniformly equal symmetric circumferentially. Acantho means like a spur like in Greek or Latin. Okay, so that's a spur cell. A kinocyte is their circumferential. And I remember E for equidistant space. A kino means hedgehog. It's like a hedgehog. It's kind of like a porcupine. It's got all these spines on it. And they're equidistant from each other. So anyways, the high fat meal by increasing myeloperoxidase, the myeloperoxidase binding to the red blood cell, overcoming its data potential, distorts the shape of the RBC. And it's going to be less effective at oxygen delivery in that setting. It's also more prone to clotting. It's prothrombotic. Okay, you accumulate um, some of the fat in the, the monocytes. That's bad too, but that's a, a secondary issue. We talk about the externalization of the phosphatidylserine. So it's typically an inner leaflet of the plasma membrane of the red blood cells. It then gets displaced. It flips into the outer leaflet and it makes the red blood cell more stiff, less deformable, harder to push through a capillary, blood pressure goes up. So it's another reason why high fat diets cause um, hypertension. They also inhibit endothelial nitric oxide, the vasodilator. So that's another reason why high fat diets cause hypertension, high blood pressure. Um, they, in a sense, what they're causing is accelerated aging of the red blood cells. Red blood cells age over time through glycation, for example, but they also age over time through externalization of phosphatidylserine to the outer leaflet. So they're accelerating the aging of red blood cells. That's bad. Um, in addition, the phosphatidylserine will bind with some of these receptors. There's something called the phosphatidylserine receptor on the endothelial cells, EC for endothelial cell. And there's also the RAGE receptor. What that means is receptor for advanced glycation end products. So this is making the red blood cells more prone to sticking to the endothelium, okay? So this is also making them more prone to clotting, to aggregating on the cell wall. That's what atherosclerosis is, accumulation of red blood cells on the endothelial lining. And you're going to hear people say, oh, well, the atherosclerosis goes subintimal. Well, you can just cover up these adherent 
clotted red blood cells on endothelium with the circulating progenitor endothelial cells. And that's what really happened. So that's how stuff gets subintimal. That's a whole other topic, getting into the details of atherosclerosis physiology. But if any doctors or atherosclerosis experts are watching it, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, heparin, you know, real negatively charged can break apart the, the aggregation caused by the fat, for example. Um, here was just a Roy Swank article when he talked about the oxygen availability in brain tissues after lipid meals, high fat meals. And he, he mentioned that it was like a 30% reduction. So Roy Swank, he wrote tons of papers. And this was way back in 1960. He knew all this stuff way back then. Um, acute triggers a myocardial infarction. So eating a high fat meal, you know, causes a significantly increased risk of having an acute myocardial infarction. Okay. So if you got heart disease, it's a bad idea to be eating high fat meals. Okay, uh, elementary lipemia, procoagulation effects from LPS. LPS uh, has a tendency because of leaky gut associated with eating these high fat meals to get into the blood and that's prothrombotic. And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce you to something you might've heard of coronary syndrome X, so here is the heart would be in here. I'd actually haven't drawn the heart and I just drew the ascending aorta. So the heart pumps blood into the aorta, ascending thoracic aorta. Then it also pumps blood that goes into the coronary artery. So the main one is the left main coronary artery. Okay. And that gives off the circumflex and it gives off the LAD, the left anterior descending. And these are big arteries on the outer surface of the heart where the outer layer of the heart is called the epicardium. So these are the epicardial arteries. And when they get a, a marked narrowing in here, you can put a stent in it if it's proximal. And what I'm trying to say is there's these little arteries that come off these big epicardial arteries. And these ones go into the muscle. These are intramuscular small arteries. They're also called the microvasculature. There are people who have cardiac chest pain and they can even have a heart attack and die and develop congestive heart failure, all kinds of problems who have relatively clean on cardiac calf, big arteries, epicardial arteries. So this is called cardiac syndrome X or microvascular angina. And the relevance is you can't stent these little arteries. They're too small. You can't bypass them. They're too small, but they can still cause tremendous damage to your heart muscle. And there's only one, you know, one good way to fix those, optimize your diet. And, you know, they'll, they'll tell you about medication therapy for that as well. But if you can optimize something with diet and no side effects, that would be nice compared to taking a pill that's going to cost you money and have potential side effects. Okay, exogenous fatty acids from the diet and endogenous fatty acid from uh, lipid tissue plus LPS, they all activate a toll-like receptor number four and that causes insulin resistance. So the point I'm saying is dietary fat plus fat release from obesity. If you're fat, you release um, called like a spillover effect, uh, fatty acids into the blood plus LPS. All of these things contribute to insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is the fundamental problem in diabetes. Um, so you don't want that. You want to avoid everything that causes insulin resistance. So the whole point was high fat diet does that in a big way. Um, the other thing too is major depression patients. So getting back, we talked earlier about, you know, deep brain stimulation being the hot new research topic in major depression. Well, guess what? These patients they found tend to have increased LPS in their blood and it seemed to be associated with their depression. So the point I'm saying is if somebody was taking care of a depressed patient, you know, optimizing their diet would be a way and getting more dietary fiber to reduce the LPS in their blood and the whole, there's a whole bunch of other problems associated with um, food and mood. I've, I've talked about that previously and that's a whole big subject, but it's free, it's cheap. There's no side effects. Why not optimize all that stuff? It's not necessarily going to get the patient cured, but it might help them to feel better. It might have a significant effect. It's certainly worth a try for free and improving their overall health. 
here's a picture of a slide. And some of this, I'm going to be talking about the research of Douglas Kell and Aesthesia Praetorius. I'll show you some of their papers in just a moment. But basically, here's leaky gut. You got bacteria getting across the colon lining into the into the vein that go to the liver. This is called the portal vein. And some of these bacteria, if there's enough of them, they'll get past the, the immune system cells like the macrophages, the cup for cells in the liver, and they'll get into the systemic blood, the rest of the blood. LPS is the endotoxin also getting in here. And the point I'm saying is this LPS, lipopolysaccharide, you know, the gram negative, gram, G, G negative is gram negative bacteria. You can also get some similar chemicals called lipotychoic acid from gram positive bacteria. They get into the blood. They make the blood more prothrombotic. And that effect is amplified if the person has high iron in their blood. People tend to become iron overloaded as they get older. Men start developing this problem after 20 years of age. Women start developing this when they become postmenopausal because their body's no longer, you know, losing uh, iron through monthly menstruation, like a therapeutic phlebotomy. Anyways, when the blood becomes more prothrombotic, you get a cascade of reaction that also, if it gets across the blood-brain barrier, it tends to lead to precipitation of the beta amyloid proteins and they'll form what is called beta sheets. So two main secondary structures of protein are alpha helix, like a slinky, these coiled loops, versus what are called beta sheets or our beta pleated sheets. And the point being is beta pleated sheets are like pieces of paper. They stack up on each other very easily and they connect with each other, okay? So if you notice the hydrogen bonds in alpha helix tend to be within the same molecule, connecting the, the spiral loops like the slinky loop-to-loop -loop curlicues versus in a beta pleated sheets, the hydrogen bonds tend to be between separate molecules, sticking them all together in a stack. And the problem is just like you can stack lots of pieces of paper together, you can stack lots of beta amyloid proteins together. And once you get too many of them stuck together, they precipitate, meaning they come out of solution. For any protein in the body to be functional, it needs to be in solution. So all I'm saying is this is a contributing factor to damage the proteins, leading to a beta sheet accumulation and precipitation. And Douglas Kell's research group, and the guy's a brilliant researcher, he thinks this is a significant contributor to uh, Alzheimer's dementia. Now, don't get me wrong. The word dementia, that's a whole other discussion. I've talked about that in other lectures, but it, it's still an interesting point. The main thing I think about is you don't want prothrombotic blood. Okay, we talked about leaky gums also being a way that bacteria can get into the blood and, uh, and uh, LPS. Um, iron ex rapidly amplifies the process. We also have dormant bacteria in our blood. And when people first hear that, they're often shocked by that. I've known infectious disease fellows who I tell them, what about the dormant bacteria in the blood? And they give me this look like they're kind of freaked out. They don't even know that. Medical students, internal medicine doctors don't know about this. Most of them don't. But if you think about it, it's kind of obvious. And I'll explain why in just a moment. Okay. Um, this, by the way, is from Douglas, one of Douglas Kell, Aetheresia uh, Pretorius. They're like partners in the research papers and how you get distortion of red blood cell sh uh, shapes in the setting of high iron in the blood, you know, which is typically indicated by high ferritin levels in the blood and the setting of LPS in the blood. And like I said, they think that's a major causative link to dementia. And on electron microscopy, you'll see the bacteria in the blood. Okay, there's dormant bacteria is a much more common problem than people realize. They didn't know how to culture them effectively in the past. That's why they didn't realize they were there. But that's also one of the reasons why patients, when they get a blood transfusion, they don't do as well as people thought they were going to before they started doing blood transfusions more often. Um, so here, here's their names, by the way, if you want to see them. That's Etheresia Praetorius. Uh, she's based out of South Africa. She's really brilliant. And so is Douglas Cal. He's based out of England. Um, they're PhD researchers. And he does a lot. He's a little more microbiology 
based. She's more, you know, looking at a microscope, an electron microscope at uh, effects on cells, especially red blood cell. So the reason why I say it's kind of obvious that we have dormant bacteria is because you just got to think about it. Everybody knows tuberculosis can sit dormant for a long time and be activated by immune suppression and corticosteroids. Everybody knows syphilis can be dormant for a long time and have a tertiary phase going into the brain. That's how Al Capone's died. You know, tons of people died of syphilis back in the 1800s. A lot of famous people. I think Schubert, the great musician, died of that. I think Nietzsche, the philosopher, probably died of that. Um, Winston Churchill's dad probably died of that, tertiary syphilis. Lyme disease has become more common. That also has a dormant phase. It's kind of complex. Everybody knows that herpes viruses have dormant phases, both the cold sores and the genital type. And then there's other type of bacteria that can live inside the red blood cells. And there's a whole bunch of bacteria that are less pathogenic, so they're less famous. Trust me, this is a well-known concept. You'd be amazed how many papers there are on this subject. Okay, and the point is some of them can sit in dormancy and then be reactivated when free iron is available. They need iron to replicate. They just go into dormancy when there's no iron available. And by the way, they can see these dormant bacteria. They just see them with an electron microscope. Um, like I said, LPS is from gram-negative bacteria, activates toll-like receptor 4. LTA from gram-positive bacteria, lipotychoic acid can activate. Uh, well, interact with toll-like receptor 2. Okay, but where does this get interesting? Um, oh, I like this picture. If you look at an egg, think of an egg. Um, and normally the eggshell will allow... Uh, some passage of like a bacteria, if it wanted to, it could get into the egg. But here's the problem. The egg white has no iron in it. And because there's no iron in it, the bacteria can never grow through there and get to the egg yolk and get to all the nutrients in the egg yolk. That's what prevents it. And it's kind of like a human. If a human wanted to walk to the other side of the desert, you know, let's say a couple hundred miles in the desert, they can't do it because there's no water. For a human to survive, we need water. For a bacteria to survive, it needs iron. So the point is that our human body, we sequester iron. We keep it bound inside cells to ferritin, in the blood to transferrin, so that it's not sitting free because if the bacteria get a hold of it, they'll start proliferating like crazy. Normally, as we get older, we start being more and more overloaded with iron, especially the guys, but the women start catching up after uh, menopause. And as that iron accumulates, we'll start to leak some of it into the blood, especially like when cells die. So here's iron metabolism in the human body. Normally, the iron inside a cell is stored in ferritin, and it can bind like 4,500 uh, molecules of iron. So if you have a cell in the liver which stores a lot of iron, it dies, it can release tons of iron into the blood. Normally, in the blood, the iron runs on transfer, and it looks like a little kayak, a little boat, and these two blue circles are the iron, and that's how it's supposed to be transported in the blood. But some of the iron gets free. NTBI means non-transferrin-bound iron. This is free iron, and this is the stuff that's dangerous and can, can become autocatalytic in the blood. Here's the spleen, normally where red cells are kind of go to die. It's like the spleen graveyard. And then the macrophages, the phagocytic cells will um, engulf the red blood cells and the contents can be recycled. Bone marrow is where stuff is made in the first place. The duodenum of the gut is where the iron's mostly absorbed. Uh, but anyways, if you get free iron in the blood, it can cycle back and forth between Fe2 plus and Fe3 plus, 3 plus. And this can lead to something called a Fenton reaction where you're converting hydrogen peroxide into hydroxyl radicals. And that can cause a whole cascade of reactions, including lipid peroxidation that does a lot of damage to the body. So what's the point? It's bad to be iron overloaded. Where does most of this iron come from? From eating meat, like heme iron, like especially in red meat. But you also get <clears throat> some of this iron. Heme irons absorb much higher rates than is plant iron. 
And you can get a lot of iron also from eating all these fortified foods. Like a typical example is when I was young, I thought, well, gee, you need to be strong. You need more, eat more iron. So I used to intentionally eat the raisin brand that had like the higher, highest iron added to it. Now I've learned, you know, they just, you don't want these iron fortified foods. Trust me. Okay. You know, there might be a special ex ex exceptions if a woman's really anemic or any person's really anemic. Yeah, those are special circumstances, but a normal healthy person uh, with adequate iron source, they don't want to be eating extra iron. Okay, this is more detail if you want about Douglas Kell and Esclerizia pretoris' theory of dementia. And they have a theory that they believe that the bacteria are getting into the blood through leaky gut and leaky gums. And they're sort of having a synergistic effect with the iron overload to lead to these cascades of reactions that are prothrombotic and um, increasing oxygen, oxidative stress. Trust me, it's very interesting. We don't need to go into all, but the bottom line is just don't become iron overloaded and don't eat high fat meals, okay? Prevent leaky gut and you kind of avoid all this stuff. But I'm just letting you know, there's this entire literature. And by the way, they're two of the most famous researchers in their field. Their papers are cited by tons and tons of people. Like in their journals, they'll have some of the most popular papers. Um, and I've seen their lectures. They're really good. The best lecture you could watch on both of them got a lot of good lectures, but the best one is where he has a one hour summary on systems biology approach. And he goes through all of this stuff. It's quite interesting. Okay, free iron. I think we talk about iron enough and it's not the main issue with leaky gut. I, I specifically talked about iron because it relates to prothrombotic blood. And you get, what I see happening to a lot of people in health and disease is that they don't just have one risk factor. They'll have like 10 risk factors and they all add up to accumulate into something big and damaging. So they sort of nickel and dime themselves to death. Oh, and I have a little more. I, I briefly had mentioned CSX, coronary syndrome X before. Who's the main person who gets that? That's postmenopausal women. Okay. And it's also increased in persons with autoimmune disease have a lot of this too. So, you know, this is something people die from. This is just uh, showing a graph of the different types of coronary artery disease um, and cardiac disease. And basically ischemic cardiac disease based on the microvasculature. These are microvascular angina type syndrome. Okay. And these are people who have a clean cardiac cast. So there's nothing to stent. There's nothing to bypass. I just saw some university video on it. And the doctor there was like, mentioned all these drugs, Six, you know, five different drugs and exercise for treatment of microvascular angina. They did not once mention diet and diet would be the most important thing. What I'm saying is, you know, you, you can also take medication, certainly. Yeah, but why not just fix it with diet like the Esselstyn diet? And, you know, Esselstyn, he had like 198 patients in a row with no recurrent cardiovascular events in four years. Uh, July 2014 Journal of Family Practice um, paper on the subject. So why not fix it that way? Okay. Um, these are all other risk factors. The same risk factors for atherosclerosis anywhere else are risk factors for this microvascular angina, coronary artery syndrome X. Um, and like I was saying, it, this is what's occurring in these small arteries, the branches coming off the big arteries. So you can only stent or bypass the big arteries. You can't do nothing about these small arteries. Either fix it with pills or fix it with diet. And diet seems to me a much better way to go. You might need pills as well, but just being aware of it. Um And that's a paper talking about the abnormal blood rheology, meaning the thick blood. Yeah, like, like we just talked about for all these reasons with the high fat diet. Oh, here's something really interesting. I call this an AO, academic orgasm alert. I thought this was a really cool concept. And this is the idea that the higher the hemoglobin A1C is, the more glycated the red blood cells. What that means is the more stiff they are, the less able they are to change their shape. Normally, red blood cells change their shape when their oxygen is released from the hemoglobin. And that shape change, has a secondary effect on the red blood cell. 
it causes the red blood cell to release ATP in the blood. I'll show you a picture of this in just a moment. And this is really important concept because it opens up the artery wider so more oxygen can be delivered to that tissue. So this is what makes possible something called neurovascular coupling. Okay. Um, how much time do I got, by the way? I'm looking at my clock. Gosh, I get confused with this clock. Well, I'll just keep going a little more. Uh, so bottom line, higher hemoglobin A1C, the more hypoxic you're going to be. And here's, let's say, your baseline flow. Here's vasoconstricted. When you need more oxygen, the tissue is active. you got to open up that artery to let more of these red blood cells in. The purple red blood cells are ones that are low in oxygen because they've already had it taken off of them because they're so close to the endothelial lining. So to get more oxygen in there, you need to dilate this artery. The way it works is here's your red blood cell. It gives off oxygen, and then it'll change its shape and release ATP. The ATP, adenosine triphosphate, binds with the endothelium, and then that causes an effect that goes retrograde backward down the artery to open up that artery and deliver more oxygen. So as the, as the red blood cell is basically modulating the whole system, as it loses oxygen, it senses that more oxygen is needed. So it tells the artery to dilate so more red cells will come in. And that's how you couple the oxygen activity, the metabolic activity of the tissue that's located out here with the oxygen delivery. Let's say this is a neuron. It gets very active, then it needs more oxygen. The red cell senses that and says, hey, open up wider, dilate, so we can get more oxygen to this tissue. And that's essential for neurovascular coupling. If you mess that up, these brain cells don't get enough oxygen and they can potentially die. Okay, so what I'm saying is, look what a disaster this high-fat diet is. It causes increased blood-brain barrier permeability. And then that will disrupt neuron ion gradients because you're getting different ions leaking into the space around the neurons. And that's going to cause brain fog because those neurons can't function at their optimal way if their ionic gradients are disrupted. Lots of people got problems with brain fog. And I think people in general are becoming stupider. And there's for a lot of reasons because, um, like I said, my internal medicine friends tell me, and I just see it because I get tons and tons of brain MRIs for cognitive impairment. Plus, I talk to a lot of these old patients when I do procedures on them and lots of old people. And I talk to lots of old people in my personal life. They're not doing as well cognitively as one would expect. Okay. And I've had young people tell me, oh, gosh, everybody's got attention deficit these days. I think it's because too much time on cell phones. Back in the 1800s, it was routine to read these triple decker novels, you know, 400 to 1200 pages. Les Mis, 1200 pages. Brothers Karamazov, 800 pages. Anna Karenina, 600. Tale of Two Cities, 400 pages. How many people, you know, read big novels nowadays? And I know everyone says, well, there's so much else to do. We can watch TV, listen to the radio, you know, we got social media, but, you know, it's rare that anybody reads a big book and talks about it nowadays. Okay, so anyways, I think that's a significant issue. This is Lady Liberty Leaving the People, another beautiful painting that kind of goes with this theme and these two pictures here. You got to exercise because if you don't exercise, you're kind of like a like a slug, a filter feeder. A This is a sea squirt in its life cycle. When it's juvenile, it swims around as a brain. As an adult, it attaches to a rock, becomes a filter feeder. Its brain is recycled, reabsorbed. And Voltaire had asked, you know, back in the 1700s, why do animals have brains but plants do not? Because animals move, okay? You need a brain. So when you're when you're moving, you're using your brain. I've previously talked about the deletory theory of chronic cerebral hypoperfusion, meaning that if you tie off the carotid artery in a mouse, you drop blood flow to the brain, and gradually you'll lose brain cells and become cognitively impaired. And there's tons of things that do that in humans. Atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, Sleep apnea causes hypoxia at night, lack of oxygen delivery. Diabetes causes the lack of oxygen delivery if they don't get the insulin dosages correct, which often happens. Overtreated hypertension, a very common cause. So again, multiple contributing factors to cognitive impairment, I think are why so many people are cognitively impaired. Uh, sleep apnea patients, you put a pulse ox on them at night, 
while they're sleeping, they'll drop their oxygen stats quite a bit and that can lead to dementia. A lot of them are notorious for cognitive impairment. Things that cause increased neurotransmitter like glutamate release in the neurons, meaning it's an excitatory neurotransmitter, increases activity in the postsynaptic neuron. Those are gonna increase the metabolic mate. Uh, metabolic rate. So what I'm saying is a very common cause of dementia based on my study of the subject is you're increasing the metabolic rate of the postsynaptic neuron by stimulating it with stimulants. And this could be caffeine, psychological stress, sleep deprivation, MSG, MFG, and then you're simultaneously dropping the blood flow. Well, now you put that neuron in a difficult position. Its metabolic rate is higher, but its oxygen delivery, glucose delivery is lower. That neuron cannot continue to live if that continues. So this is actually my theory of dementia that, you know, I call it boast kind of, you know, bragging in a joking way. You got a level of brain function that requires a certain amount of oxygen and glucose delivery. OGD is oxygen glucose deprivation. So if you drop the oxygen and glucose delivery to a neuron and you some simultaneously give it stimulants to ramp up its metabolic rate, it cannot match. And you're also typically going to be low in antioxidants and there's toxins that do that as well. You put the neuron in an impossible position. In order to function, it has to be able to increase its metabolic rate but it's not getting the blood flow. So it's not getting the oxygen and glucose for all these reasons, high fat diet, sodium vasoconstriction, et cetera, lack of vasodilators like potassium and magnesium that are in plant foods, um, as well as these other chronic disease problems. Those brain cells just start dying. They go into apoptosis. And I say that because the vast majority of brains that are demented, they're just atrophic. There's no stroke. There's you know, maybe some chronic silent strokes in the periventricular regions, flare hyperintensities, but there's no significant large cortical stroke to cause the cognitive impairment. They just got an atrophic brain. Okay, high-fat diet and multiple mouse experiments has been shown to decrease memory and also uh, decrease the mood of the mouse. They have depressive-like symptoms just showing up at five days. Other mouse experiments, they've shown cognitive impairment from a high-fat diet after just one meal. Mice have rather similar physiology to us. That's why they're studied. So this is just showing the test. And they could then uh, start feeding the mouse a low-fat diet, and they would start reestablishing their cognitive function and their performance. Um, in multiple uh, parameters. You know, to me, it's kind of obvious. I mean, look at the Tadahumata, Northern Mexico, Copper Canyon that kept their old diet, eating a lot of corn and beans and local greens. They're fit ultramarathon runners, okay? Look at the adjacent population, the Pima, who were absorbed into Arizona and they ate the westernized SAD diet. They're sick with tons of surgery. They're fat and they get all the Western diseases. You know, they're epidemic amounts of all these things. Uh, Nathan Pritikin wrote, there is no natural diet that's too low in fat. Fat is bad, okay? Um, especially your sat fat and your omega-6s. Those are the, especially the ones I'm concerned about. Trans fat's really bad, but trans fat's not that common. Um, there's a whole bunch of research on that, especially the sat fat associated with diabetes. Um, typical diabetic will tell me, oh, my diabetes is under control with their pills. And what I would say is try to become low fat, your chance to cure it. Um, anyways, the fat will accumulate in the subcutaneous fat and in the muscle that's your initial main insulin resistance site. Then it accumulates in the liver, fatty liver, and you get liver insulin resistance, and then accumulates in the pancreas and you get destruction of the beta cells. Um, the, fat can, the fatty acids in the blood, they can just go right across the plasma membrane and the skeletal muscle. So they just get in. The only way to do it is to reduce, reduce the blood level. You can't just inhibit like a, a membrane transporter. This is called the flip-flop maneuver of fatty acid traversal of a plasma membrane of a cell. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the most important thing to know in diabetes because you can't change that any other way but reducing your fat intake. Um, the high fat diet. So here's normal electron transport in the intermitochondrial membrane. Um, and basically electrons are transported to these different carriers and then a proton gradient is made across this membrane and that's harvested through ATP synthase to produce ATP. So the point I'm showing you all this is that 
fat accumulation will inhibit right here at the level of coenzyme Q and complex three, and this whole thing will reverse. It messes up metabolism, excessive dietary fat intake, especially the uh, saturated fats. Um, normally, the body's got a system of something called superoxide dismutase that when you when you start going backwards, a little bit of that's going to happen sometimes. You're going to, it's called electron leak, and it's going to drop down and bind with an oxygen in the center of the mitochondrial matrix here. And that's going to make superoxides and normal small amounts of that happen and the body can handle them well. But when it happens excessively, it overwhelms this system and you'll start getting destruction of the membranes by lipid peroxidation. And it's much worse if they're iron overloaded. Okay. So iron overload comes from eating meat primarily and the saturated fat comes from eating meat primarily. So not a good idea to be doing that. And the older we get, the more fragile. Plus there's other things going on in the background. There's all these mitochondrial toxins. This is from the herbicides on uh, some things we talked about that before, glyphosate. This is, you know, cadmium, lead, F minus, um, H and E, like we talked about that from the omega sixes. All of these things accumulate and they're nickel and diming down, damaging your metabolic function. So you want to, you can't 100% avoid exposure to any of these, but you want to minimize your exposure to the extent you can, be as healthy as you can be. And being aware that there's all these little things going on helps you. Because a lot of people I've met, they think everything's fine, everything's fine. And what's happening is their health is gradually getting worse and worse from year to year at such a gradual rate. They don't notice it. They just know they can't do things they used to do, but they don't see it happening on a day-to-day -day basis. It's more like it happens gradually over the course of the months and years. Um, brain insulin resistance. You don't just get insulin resistance in the periphery. You get it in the brain. Um, in just three days, a high-fat diet has been shown to cause central brain insulin resistance. This was in, in rats and the rodent studies. Chronic diabetes and hypertension. So here's a normal let's say capillary, you got the red blood cells traveling through to the other side, following these arrows here. These spindle shaped cells are endothelial cells. They're aligned along the long axis of the vessel. The red blood cells deliver oxygen to the tissue. These little blue circles are oxygen. They diffuse across the capillary basement membrane. They'll go to this neuron, for example. Okay, so the relevance of this slide is to show, here's what happens with diabetes and a hypertension. You get thickening of the capillary basement membrane. And then the oxygen molecules are less able to diffuse across this thickened capillary basement membrane and potentially hypertrophied uh, smooth muscle wall of this uh, vessels as well. There's not that many smooth muscles along the capillary. They're on the bigger vessels, but I'm still saying your oxygen delivery is impaired. And then it's impaired further by the high fat diet, by the sodium vasoconstriction, et cetera. So you're getting less oxygen to this tissue. Well, if you don't get enough oxygen to this neuron to meet its metabolic demands, it can go into programmed cell death, apoptosis and die. And this accumulates and gets worse as a person gets older. Um, most common spot where we see small silent strokes in the brain is right at the level of the cerebral ventricles. This is called the corona radiata. I drew a skull and crossbones at this level to show you tons and tons. Ask any neuroradiologist, ask anybody who looks at brain MRIs, they will tell you. You get all these bright spots, uh, high signal uh, of, on the flare sequence I showed you earlier there with the MS patient. And that's from, um, you're not getting enough blood flow to the brain in this location. And that's for multiple reasons, high fat diet, et cetera, sodium, et cetera. But you also run into the problem, you got hypertension. If you overtreat your hypertension, these small penetrating arteries have a hard time delivering oxygen and glucose to these deep end artery territories. They're not that well collateralized, meaning that they don't have that much good blood flow from other locations. So tons of people got uh, flare hypertension. As a matter of fact, every macro, the standard you know template for dictating a brain MRI is mild, moderate, or severe periventricular corona radiata, um, centrum semiovale, the brain up here is called centrum semiovale, right adjacent to the cerebral cortex. It's gray outline. Cortex means bark, like the bark of a tree. That's called subcortical regions. That's my step, my, my basic 
uh, macro for dictating a brain MRI, mild, moderate, or severe, periventricular and subcortical flare hyper intensity, ventricular if it's touching the ventricle. So this is super common. In some one patient, you can have like hundreds of these little silent strokes. So obviously that person is not going to be functioning at their mental best. Um, here's a neuron. Here's a cell body where the uh, neuron's nucleus is located. Typical action potential arises at this site here, just adjacent to the cell body at the beginning of the axon. And this is called the axon hillock. And the neuron action potential is transmitted by these sodium channels primarily. So this is a delicate balance of ions and their electrical charges. If you have a, a blood-brain barrier leaking and allowing toxins and other ions in here, they're going to disrupt these gradients. These neurons are not going to function well, and the person's going to have brain fog. Okay. Once the action potential reaches the synaptic terminal, the end of the axon, a neurotransmitter is released. It diffuses across the synaptic cleft and then has exerts an effect upon the postsynaptic neuron. And that's how information is transmitted in the brain. Um, excessive dietary sodium causes problems. This slide did not display correctly. There's calcium right here. But what I'm trying to say here is when you eat excessive dietary sodium, you tend to dissipate this sodium uh, gradient on your, your plasma membrane of your nerve cells and your muscle cells, and you'll accumulate calcium inside of them. So we don't need to get into that. That's not the topic for today. But what I am saying is excessive dietary sodium, which goes with processed food and meat, is bad for your cells. Whereas what you really need is this potassium and magnesium. That's what helps these cells to maintain their gradients. Magnesium's in the center of chlorophyll. Potassium's high in plants. That's what gives you what you want. Um, this slide did not display correctly, but the point was magnesium binds to the phosphates. So let's say the second and third phosphate on ATP, adenosine triphosphate, to sort of keep the negative charges under control before the, ex the distal phosphate's released. Okay, here's magnesium in the center of chlorophyll. So you get it from eating plants. Um, here's a brain showing the hippocampus, the main part of our memory uh, center for like declarative memories of like specific statements you could say I remember on this day you know I was such and such an age and you know we went to the park okay or something like that that's a declarative memory in comparison with, let's say a procedural memory like in the cerebellum this is how you ride a bike for example anyways this is highly sensitive to all the things we just talked about um, and here's like a key thing about brain diabetes these brain cells, these neurons, they have GLUT4 transporters. If you look at any book, it's going to tell you glucose type 1, glucose type 3 transporters in the central nervous system, and that these don't need insulin, glucose type 1s and the glucose type 3. But what the books will not tell you, you have to go into the literature, is that you do have glucose types 4 transmitters, transmitters in the uh, hippocampus and other parts of the brain, hypothalamus, and these are insulin dependent. So in order to get enough glucose into these brain cells, you have to have insulin and you have to have insulin sensitivity. If you don't have that, you can't get enough glucose into these cells for them to be optimally active. And if you have too severe a deficit due to this lack of glucose intake relative to the metabolic demand of this neuron, it'll die. It'll go into cell, it'll go into apoptosis. And that's why I see all these shrunken brains and these cognitively impaired people. And the brain can't just burn fats. It does not burn fatty acids effectively. It can, it can burn ketone bodies in the setting of starvation, but it cannot burn your fatty acids. Very poor at doing that, the, the neurons are. Astrocytes are a little different, but we're talking about neurons. That's where the information is stored. And here's a secondary reason why uh, diabetics have so much cognitive impairment. They're really sad and pathetic. I talked to a lot of diabetics, you know, they're nice, but they just don't understand what's happening to them. They're just deteriorating and they sort of like accepted it as their fate. Tons of diabetics will say to me, well, I'm getting old. What are you going to do? And then, you know, they're getting their feet amputated. They're going blind. They're in kidney failure. They got cancer. Or it's a big disaster. These uh, diabetic uh, patients, elder diabetic patients are very, very sick and they're routinely cognitively impaired. Okay, endoplasmic reticulum, 
it actually has little uh, tentacle-like processes, reticular-like processes all over the cell. And it has a special contact points with mitochondria and they're called MAMs, mitochondrial associated membranes. And what this is all about is you're walking through uh, a forest and you see a pack of wolves, for example, all of a sudden you get very intensely nervous and scared. You got to run and climb a tree or something. So you need to very quickly ramp up metabolic activity in your muscles and in your brain cells. And so that's what it, we're talking about here in your brain cells. In order to make that possible, the endoplasmic reticulum, which is storage site for calcium, will release calcium across these MAMs, uh, mitochondria-associated membranes, and they will enter the mitochondrial matrix. The center of the mitochondria is called the matrix. And that very quickly upregulates, meaning to increase the Krebs cycle, also called tricarboxylic acid cycle here, enzymes. So we can very quickly start cranking out tons more ATP energy. And the point I'm saying is if the glucose type 4 transporters are not working because of insulin resistance, you can't get adequate amounts of glucose into the skeletal muscle cell so you cannot provide the substrate, the initial reaction uh, materials to run these systems. But the endoplasmic reticulum doesn't quite understand it. These are not coupled effectively because normally that shouldn't be happening in nature. So it keeps on releasing calcium from the endoplasmic reticulum into the mitochondria. And it can cause the death of these mitochondria due to calcium accumulation. When the calcium concentration gets too high, you get a, you get a destruction of these uh, mitochondria. And when the mitochondria start dying in large numbers, that neuron just dies. So this is another reason why a diabetic won't have the best ability to um, increase their uh, cognitive uh, capacity rapidly. Like a typical person, you know, you see a pack of wolves, you're walking down a path in the forest, you got to very quickly ramp up your metabolic activity and your muscles and your brain cells. Okay, we've talked in the past about advanced glycation end products and how those are very destructive in diabetes. That's all just a sequela from that reversal of electron transport, reversal of Krebs cycle, and reversal of glycolysis that happens from a high-fat diet in diabetes. These also will stick to red blood cells. It'll glycate them. Um, that's what hemoglobin A1C is all about, glycation of red blood cells. Okay. Um, and then here's the last slide. And this is um, part of like getting back to the ideas. Now you've got this education. Prevent leaky gut. Be aware of the problems with the high fat, especially sat fat omega-6s, and how that'll decrease blood flow and oxygenation of your tissues. And in so doing, you can help a lot of people, yourself and you know friends, family, and others, protect them from... Uh, the ravages of atherosclerosis, diabetes, hypertension, and autoimmune disease. So I uh, hope that was helpful. I love you. I love your art. Where do you, I mean, uh, I, not not just the way you draw, but your art in general. Well, thanks. This is like going. To, I mean, I have never gone to medical school, but um, I imagine this is kind of what it's like. What do you think? Oh yeah. Um, I try to just focus on what matters. You know what I mean? There's a tendency in medical teaching to too much go by a book and call me arrogant, but I know more than the books. Okay. So what I try to do is go, here's the good stuff. Here's the good stuff. Here's the good stuff. There's always more. And, and so what matters is what creates a, a cohesive explanation of something. You know what I mean? So there's always like key conceptual points. So I, I try to do that. And yeah, this is like, this is like some of the coolest stuff. That's why I'm so fascinated by it. None of this stuff is in a medical textbook. This is all coming from the medical literature. Medical textbooks are really simple. Cholesterol increases atherosclerotic risk. Um, like I said, it's not even leaky guts, not even in the book. Um, but um, this stuff I think is rather fascinating. The specific ways that the red blood cells are distorted in their shape, the way that they stick together. And the great thing about all this, this is all reversible. Just don't eat that sad fat. Don't eat yeah. those oils. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. You know, I, I mean, I agree with 
I think everything you've said so far on the show, but you talk about how caffeine is not a health food, alcohol, oil, but yet there's many doctors, including plant-based doctors, even plant-based cardiologists that are promoting olive oil and caffeine, you know, for heart health. Well, I think what happens is if you just look at things in a superficial way, you're going to hear recommendations coming out of the Ivy League. The Ivy League, the most common thing you'll hear of an Ivy League doctor is to recommend the Mediterranean diet. And the reason they do it is, in my opinion, they're kind of behaving like parrots. They're just repeating something they've heard elsewhere. And if you make, let's say you're a scientific researcher and your research paper promotes the Mediterranean diet, guess what? It'll be easy to get funding. So you see all, you see all these books and papers saying the Mediterranean diet is so great. But then you start asking some basic question. Is alcohol allowed? Yes, of course, alcohol is allowed. Well, alcohol is the metabolic toxin, okay? Is meat allowed? Oh, of course meat's allowed, especially chicken and fish. Well, those contain lots of saturated fat. Those are metabolic toxins, okay? Are you allowed to put a little salt on it? Oh, sure, it makes it taste better. That's a metabolic toxin. Okay, so it starts adding up. Is cheese allowed? Oh, of course cheese is allowed. Well, cheese is dairy that increases autoimmune disease, increases atherosclerosis, increases hypertension. So, so what I'm saying is, it's obvious that it's not a healthy diet. It's it's completely obvious. But a person who has not actually spent time studying the subject, they're just going to say, oh, well, I've heard the Mediterranean diet's the best. I know top-notch gastroenterologists. I know a guy who's a fantastic gastroenterologist. And he goes, well, I've always just heard the Mediterranean diet's the best. I'm like, have you studied it? And of course not, he hasn't. You know, there's not many people that actually read the scientific literature. Um, they just, well, I've heard this in a meeting or I heard some famous doc say it, so it must be true. But as a matter of fact, with nutrition, it's it's not widely known. Yeah. I know you went to Stanford. Are you familiar with Dr. John Ioannidis? I think I maybe heard of him. I think he's the guy who, correct me if I'm wrong, who said so much of the medical literature, it's incorrect. Right. That's what he, that's what he does is he kind of demystifies. I've tried to get him on the show because what happens is like a lot of times people don't realize like studies are funded by what they're, like Marion Nestle talks about this, studies are funded by what they're trying to prove. Right. Because, because for example, you can't get funding for something that doesn't generate profit. And then the scientist is obligated to make whatever the person funding the study, the corporation typically wants promoted. So a tremendous amount of the literature and those types of studies, it's not reproducible. It's not reality. So that's another reason why I like a lot of the older studies. You look at a lot of these great studies, you know, all that stuff done on blood flow with the high fat diets. That was done back in the 1950s and 60s, you know, and and um, I also think, you know, Dr. McDougall did a fantastic job of keeping all that stuff alive. Same thing with Nathan Pritikin. I went back and read as many of them as I could in Dr. McDougall's newsletters. I went back and read all the Pritikin books. I read the Pritikin summaries over at McDougall's site, his legacy book and the um, Kempner stuff over there. There's tons of great knowledge in there that no one knows about, practically yeah. no one knows about. Well, what I like about you, Dr. Rogers, is you don't have a horse in the race. You're not selling anything. No, I, I was sort of fascinated about this because, you know, I was a little bit, I sort of felt like I was, I was very sad that I kind of like lost my athletic career. Being an athlete was fun. When you're an athlete, everybody likes you and it's fun. And I, back in those days, you know, if I could do it over again, I think I would flunk senior year of high school three times in a row on purpose. But you have to grow up and do something in the real world. And I sort of felt like, well, gosh, I got a second chance to kind of be good at something and do something I like. So I was pretty intense about studying all these things. And then I felt like I had done everything right. What more could I do? And here I am fat. My mother's dead from cancer and my father's suffering from heart disease. And I'm like, how come this happened? How did this happen? What's wrong? And I got really motivated too. And I felt bad too, like my girlfriend's mother dying an awful death. I'm like, what the heck did I sacrifice my whole life and be so lonely and study all these years and work so much 
to not be able to save these people who I love. And I was kind of frustrated about that. And then when I started exploring all this nutrition and toxicology, I'm like, oh my God, the answers are here. The cures are here. There is something one can do. I was sort of really, you know, happy that I found that material. And I kind of, I could study that stuff all the time. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I wish I had more time for it. Yeah. Would you mind answering a few questions that viewers sent in in advance? We can't take them from the chat, guys. I'm sorry. So please send them in. Just get on my mailing list at chefaj.com. Once a week, we send you the lineup and then you send it back. So I don't know if this is autoimmune disease related, but Sladyana, oh, Pete is the name, sorry, wants to know, can you talk about migraines? Oh, maybe it is a lady. I'm sorry. I have been having migraines related to my menstrual cycle for 20 years. I usually have a very bad one accompanied by nausea and vomiting that occurs before my cycle and sometimes around ovulation time. Does that put me at a higher risk of stroke? And can you please share your opinion on migraine medication uh, such as Imitrex and naproxen? Well, a couple of things. Migraines are associated with increased risk of stroke. The fact that it's having a relationship to her menstrual cycle suggests there's a good chance it's related to her being estrogen overloaded or being exposed to some type of estrogenic chemicals. So I would try to minimize all of that. Um, some people are real sensitive to MSG or other food stuffs. I would look into that. I don't routinely treat migraines. I do look at a lot of brain MRIs for migraine patients. Most of the brain MRI uh, patients are almost always normal. It's rare I'll see a couple sound strokes in a younger person, but most of the time they're normal. What I certainly do, I did give a previous lecture where I had reviewed the literature on the subject, but that was a long time ago. And I don't remember all the details of it, but I would certainly try to resolve all those things as much as I could, because if you optimize your diet, maybe avoid caffeine, you might be able to solve these problems on your own with no side effects. The more medications you take, and a lot of those are vasoconstrictor medications, the more risk you run of narrowing an artery, you know, narrowing an artery potentially to your brain. Do you want that? Because there's a whole theory of vasoconstriction uh, migraine, then there's other theories of vasodilation and some type of uh, superficial spreading migraines. And so I'm not, I'm not up to date on all that enough to, to comment on it, you know, with high level of certainty. So I don't want to say more than I know, but all I could say is I would certainly look into what you can do just by adjusting your diet and lifestyle, try that first. And then if you need medication afterwards, then, you know, then go ahead, see your neurologist and, and work through that. Yeah, I, I don't know the age of this person, but if she's not wanting to have kids, wouldn't just maybe suppressing the menstrual cycle help be helpful if they are menstrual related? It might be, but you know, I just don't know enough to say. Just because I, I mean, I've heard people, I mean, I, I'm not a doctor, obviously, but I've had people tell me that with menstrual migraines, they, you know, after they've had their children, they've had something called a, a uterine ablation, and then they never got a period, and then they never got a migraine. Yeah, well, well, it certainly might be if they're not, if they're, if they're able to resolve it like that, um, that would be good. I'm just not expert enough on that migraine to really comment effectively, I think. Great. Thank you. And thank you for saying when you're not an expert, this is from Rachel, and this is about plastic bags at the grocery store. What is your take on plastic nanoparticles getting on our skin from plastics everywhere? Is this, is this dangerous? Well, in general, plastics are ubiquitous and plastic almost always have estrogen materials in them. You know, the, the typical one of the hard plastics is BPA, but the softer plastics will often have phthalates in them. It's like the glittery stuff on a, on a bag, if you will. And so you want to minimize your contact with it to the extent you can. Um, and they're, they're sort of everywhere. Like one, another example is that they're transdermally absorbed. If you, you know, jump into the water at the pool, at the ocean, 
you don't immediately gain five or 10 pounds because your skin is designed to keep the water out. Your skin is lipophilic. It's lipid-like. In, in chemistry, like dissolves like. Your skin is like fat primarily. And what that means though is estrogen is a fat. It's dissolved across your skin, transdermally absorbed. So the more contact you have with estrogenic preservatives, they're in basically every cosmetic product you can imagine. They're in all the moisturizers. They're in all the sunscreens, the colognes, the perfumes. They're in the soaps. They're in the, because uh, no, no company when it sells a product wants mold grown in it. It gets mold grown in it, it gets sent back to the company. So they're almost always, even baby, I used to use a baby shampoo and it had like two estrogens in it, two estrogen preservatives. So what I'm basically saying is you want to avoid that as much as you can. So you want to avoid the plastic to the extent that you can. You can't completely avoid them, but you don't add to it uh, by um, all kinds of little things. Like I don't want to touch a receipt because they've got the thermal plastic with the BPA in there. If I can avoid it, you know, sometimes you got to touch it briefly, fine, but you don't, you know, rub it in your hand, leave it in your wallet forever and touch it all the time. Um, just little things like that. I try to minimize my plastic exposures. I don't drink, I'm careful about drinking bottled water. I'm not a big fan of bottled water. I mean, you know, it might be the only water you have available. Yeah. Drink it. It'll save your life. But what I'm saying is that bottle waters, a lot of times it's in PET, polyethylene terephthalate, phthalate being the key word there. It's an estrogen. It could be sitting in a warehouse for weeks in the hot sun, and you've got a lot of outgassing of the plastic into that water. So, you know, that's rather estrogenic. So to the extent you can, I mean, a better thing would be if you've got a reverse osmosis filter at your home and your kitchen sink, store your water in glass. Great. Thank you. And the last question is, do you believe our cell phones are emitting harmful radiation or should we not worry about this? Um, I would say if you're going to talk on your cell phone, use a speaker phone. Don't hold it up to your ear. Now I can remember 15 years ago, they said, oh, there's going to be a dramatic increase in, you know, tumors of the brain, brain tumors, and a dramatic increase in acoustic neuromas, you know, cranial nerve eight tumors, and a dramatic increase in, uh, parotid gland tumors, the salivary gland that's on your cheek. And I can tell you as a neuro radiologist, I haven't seen a dramatic increase in brain tumors. There probably statistically is a small increase, but I didn't see this big giant increase like I expected, you know, but what have I seen? I think there's significantly worsening amounts of cognitive impairment. Um, cognitive impairment seems to be going up and up. I know lots of people are telling me that I've got doctors coming to me, Pete, you know, I'm having problems with my memory. I got a lot of brain fog. What do you think I should do? And I'm seeing that a lot. So Cell phone might be contributing to that. There's been studies and pictures where they'll show neurons being activated with these thermal heat maps and whatnot from cell phones. And certainly it's worse with kids. I think it's a mistake to give kids a cell phone too early. I think it lowers their IQ because they become, they become totally obsessed with their social interactions rather than their phone. I certainly would not hold it. And I also seen kids behavior. Kids will then want to sleep next to their phone and they're, they're obsessed with answering their text message quickly. They'll send hundreds of them per day. So I think they're a net, a bad thing. Um, I think they're, you know, they're, they're useful. You get your, your car breaks down, you got your cell phone, you can call and you know, that can be, get a tow truck to you. But I think it's a bad idea to be holding these things to your head routinely. And lots of people are doing that. And I think it, there's a significant concern that that might be causing cognitive impairment. I also see people like people putting them in their front pocket. I think that's probably going to increase your risk of breast cancer. I see people putting them in their, their front pant pocket. That's going to microwave your, your testicles, potentially lowering your testosterone. You're sticking it in your back pocket. When you stick it in your back pocket, it's right next to your butt, your rectum. The incidence of rectal cancer is significantly going up. I would just keep that thing, you know, in a table, in a backpack, in a purse or something. I would not have it on your person. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. I well, like this was really fascinating. You're really brilliant. And I look forward to seeing you next month. It's actually going to be Easter when you come back. Oh, great. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rogers. Thank you.
And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back tomorrow for plant-based classics with Lauren Burnick. She is going to be making a baked macaroni and cheese with a crumble topping. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.